This is VOCM Open Line. Call 709-273-5211 or 1-888-590-8626. The views and opinions of this program are not necessarily those of this station. The biggest conversation in Newfoundland and Labrador starts now. Here's VOCM Open Line host Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning in to the program. It's Tuesday, January the 23rd. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Paddy Daly and David Williams. He's produced the program. We're looking forward to speaking with you on a topic of your choosing this morning. So if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial, 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 86. 26. Well, if you've been listening to the radio or you've been out by the door or even looked out the window, you see the wintry conditions. And of course, it's wintertime. So we're going to get days like this. Some of the driving conditions of different parts of the province are quite tricky today. So obviously put on your winter driving awareness hat before you get behind the wheel this morning. And then some serious cold, man. So on the Great Northern Peninsula, Labrador, overnight minus 47 with the wind. We're going to see a cold snap hit this pocket of the province as well overnight tonight. Maybe some minus 29s. One of the schools in Labrador is closed simply because of the cold. And speaking of school closures, of course, many schools in Corner Brook and surrounding area have a delayed opening today, including many businesses. But you can only hope that there was a lesson learned from the last snowstorm and school-related matter in Cornerbrook last week. So the so-called disconnect between the Department of Education and the Department of Transportation, because transportation governs the rules surrounding when the school buses are taken off the road. So we know how that all came to pass last week. Let's hope they reopen that channel of communication required to make the right decision in a timely fashion. And you heard Mr. Medor say last night, Dawson Mercer with an assistant overtime to get the winner for New Jersey. Uh, you know, I love getting up and checking the NHL scores, especially checking on how boys, our boys are doing. So, I, is Michael Ryder the most prolific scorer from this province to play in the NHL? Like, he's high watermark. In 2011-2012, he scored 35 goals, then playing for the Dallas Stars. He finished his career with 237 goals. I wonder when the next player we produce will get to some of those lofty heights. I mean, he had 484 points in his pretty solid NHL career with the Stanley Cup to his name. So, Michael Ryder, and he's not the most prolific scorer. Fill me in. I'll, I'll be happy to learn. Speaking of scoring, on this date, 1981, New York Islanders' Mike Bossy became the second NHL scored 50 goals in 50 games 36 years after the rocket Maurice Richard did so. All right, this is a great story coming from Labrador. Now, we do know all the associated costs of travel uh, coming from Labrador to the island or anywhere else outside of Labrador. It's prohibitive and it's punitive. So we talk about it in the air of medical transport, for starters. Then the story about these young volleyball players from Labrador who wanted to take a crack at trying out for the Canada Summer Games team coming up in 2025. So the players born in 2007-2008, they were invited to a camp. They'll eventually whittle it down to 24 and then further on to 14th. That'll be the team that'll play in the Canada Games. So the five volleyball players from Labrador, they're looking at the cost and saying, I'd really like to have a try, you know, see how my talent matches up to other players in the province. And for some communities, volleyball is king. I didn't know that, but apparently so. So through some funding efforts from First Light and others, they have managed to send five players from Labrador to have a swing at having an opportunity to play on this particular team. So good on them and good on everyone who supported them, financially speaking, and I guess emotionally and sporting uh, efforts. So with travel costs in and around $2,000, then you got to add in accommodation, transportation, meals, all the rest. So congratulations to the lads. And hopefully one of them or two of them or five of them cracked the lineup to participate 
in the games. And speaking of the games, one more shout out on behalf of the organizing committee out in Gander preparing for the 2024 Newfoundland and Labrador Winter Games. Kicks off on the 24th of February. Runs to the 2nd of March. They've got volunteers, but I think they still need some more. So if you're around that area would like to participate as a volunteer, please do it. All right, let's get to healthcare for a second. So it's become quite tricky in the recent past to talk about healthcare period, especially when you talk about the prevalence or prominence of respiratory illnesses, whether it be with the influenza and or COVID or whatever else, because there's a bunch of people in the country never want to hear some of those words ever again in their life. I get it. But then you just try to understand how sharing of information is not in an effort to scare anybody, and it's not in an effort to talk about mandates and lockdowns and all the rest of it. It's just that information is king. So when the story regarding strep, someone sent me an email overnight warning me not to talk about it. It's kind of a strange thing to say to someone who talks about issues for a living. But in the world of information sharing, so if you've ever had strep throat, you know it can be quite nasty. I had it a few years ago and it knocked me off my feet. But now they're talking about the possibility, given last year, 52 cases of invasive group A streptococcal disease. There was 52, double than any year prior. So how do people want to hear and have that news shared? It's, again, not an effort to say stay home and batten down the hatches and never interact with another human being again because you might get sick, because that's always been a possibility. You know, from anything from the common cold through more severe illness. The information that's being shared and the hopes are great because good old penicillin can deal with this streptococcal disease like I've taken in the past, like many of you have taken in the past. It's just about being aware that if you get sick quite quickly, then maybe try to get a diagnosis as to whether or not you have strep and or this invasive variety of streptococcal disease. So again, it's just putting that warning out there that sometimes when you get sick, you don't think it's anything more than simply that. You've got a dose of the cold and whatever. It might be quite uh, terrible for a couple of days. But the warning here is you get it early, diagnose early, get the treatment early, you're going to be okay. So when we talk about those healthcare-related matters, it is a struggle because the pushback is immediate and in some cases quite ferocious. But that's just an issue that's out there. And if you want to tackle that or anything else like that, we can do it. Okay, complete change of pace. You know, it's long been a concern what the future for Canada Post looks like. And they've tried to be everything to everyone. And now they're trying to sell off some of their assets to remain viable. They've lost about a half a billion dollars in 2022. And the third quarter of 2023, they lost $250 million. So it's a problem. So CUPW represents some 60,000 employees at Canada Post. They're not going to be impacted by some of the most recent sell-offs, but they're ditching their IT and logistics departments. So in the IT world, it's called Innova Post. They sell it to Deloitte Canada. So they're going to absorb the workforce of some 750 people. Canada Post maintains the IT leadership. Then in the world of logistics, selling that off as well, and that's some 3,000 people work in that department. But people who are researchers in this arena, you know, I don't think they've coined this phrase necessarily, but Canada Post has been Amazon. You know, they're really falling behind. And the cost, about half of the cost for delivering the mail is what they call the last mile. So people looking at ways for the Crown Corporation to remain viable in the future because package or parcel delivery has dropped off. So when we even talk about letters, letters have dropped off between 6 and 8% per year by the number of pieces. So even in that area, because we all know using what people refer to as snail mail and or your packages been gridlocked in Dieppe and all the references people make regarding Canada Post, we're talking about a ton of people and certainly plenty of people in this province working for that Crown Corporation. So 
What does the future look like? They're talking about getting into the e-commerce world, a pretty hotly contested arena already. And then, you know, you go a little bit further, talking about post offices being closed. For many people, the post office was a hub in the community. Then they talk about the potential for post offices to double as banks, quasi-banks, not with a full suite of services. And then speaking of banks and the loss of Canada Post and otherwise, what has that meant for communities that have seen either or go by the wayside? It's, le- it's more than simply not being able to go see a teller to cash or check or to pay a bill. Because as we've heard in many uh, communities, when people have to travel far afield, let's say from Fogo Island go to Gander. When you go to Gander to do your banking, very likely you're going to spend some money that you could have spent on Fogo Island you're going to spend it in Gander. So that has a widespreading impact, but Canada Post's future looks pretty bleak when you talk about the steady belt of losses suffered by that Crown Corporation in the last number of years. So if you like, Craig Dyer would be good to have on the show. He's the Cup W representative at Canada Post, even though inside of IT and logistics, there are 60,000 members inside that union are not impacted, but it's the long-term conversation that's being had at Canada Post, and I would imagine the, throughout the rank and file represented by Cup W. Anyway, that's a big story. So the province is going to be taking a look at artificial intelligence as it pertains to both their internal rules and potential legislation. So we know there's a bill going through Parliament now, Bill C-27, talking about the use of artificial intelligence in the federally regulated industries. It's been panned widely as a very weak piece of legislation. And like I don't necessarily use it actively, generative uh, AI, like ChatGPT. And regardless if you do, as a listener here this morning, it's going to impact almost everything we see and touch and feel. It will be. It's a massive big deal that's been referred to as revolutionary, world-changing. And so the government absolutely has to have a look at how AI is used inside the operations of government. They do indeed use it for looking at government data and data compilation, but they don't use things like ChatGPT to produce documents, which is obviously quite a good thing. There are some very strict adherence uh, regarding legislation and artificial intelligence in different places, like the European Union has a very staunch uh, approach to it. They've got risk categories for various industries. The rules tighten as the industries become more precarious and or the risks are higher. So Minister Studley is talking about trying to do better than Ottawa is doing. And again, you might not have any interest in ChatGPT, have never used it in your life, but it's going to be a risk area for many er for many arenas. It can be a great starting point to do your research. We've heard warnings about using ChatGPT GPT and being accused of or held accountable for things like plagiarism. But the impact is widespread. I know this was Tech Talk Tuesday morning with Ben Murphy and Jerry Lynn Mackey where they talked with their tech advisor, and I think this was part of the conversation this morning. But when you look at things like automation has already resulted in many job losses. And of course, there has to be jobs created to work on, to create, and to maintain or fix or repair uh, automated services. But it does come with more job losses. Then it's the whole concept of the deep fake. And that's going to become more prevalent. We've got to be really wary of that. Things regarding your privacy. And we've spoken to Michael Harvey about artificial intelligence and privacy violations. Then they'll talk about the... You know, it's an algorithm, so there's no human emotion in the day-to-day operations and the output of artificial intelligence, but algorithms can be biased, right? Because a human had to create the algorithm in the first place. So the result there could be some terribly bad data and purposefully built disinformation campaigns. Then it's the economic, the socioeconomic inequality that is absolutely part of tech innovations. Then you get into 
market interruptions. There's been examples in the past where uh, artificial intelligence has seen some real volatile action in financial industries, and in particular in the stock market, which could throw your investment, unbeknownst to you, into turmoil or a death spiral because of some built-in bias and trade-happy algorithms. So as much as it's not something on my radar or front burner all the time, it's probably very wise that government is very cautious about how we proceed on this front, because governments work very slowly. The advent of AI and its growing in intensity has been at breakneck speed. There were somewhere in the neighborhood of 1,200 tech leaders that were really calling for a pause in any of these large artificial intelligence experience, experiments because they're becoming sentient. I mean, it kind of feels like something out of, out of uh, a Hollywood film. But it's very real, and it's right there in front of us, so we'll certainly have to tackle it and take it on. If you're so inclined as a caller, please do exactly that. Today, all right, big news coming out of the federal liberal cabinet retreat. Uh, again, governments are slow, man. They just are. Some issues that, gets discussed, that get discussed in the general public, around the water cooler, or at the coffee shop, or on this program, and then they acknowledge there's a potential problem, and in this case, it's about housing. So finally, a move by the federal government to do something about what is a massive impact on the housing market and the crunch that many are experiencing. It seems like a bit of a strange place for them to start, but what they're doing is a cap on international students. So they're going to cap it in 2024 at 360,000 undergrad study permits. That's a 35% reduction from 2023, and it doesn't look like it's going to end there. It might extend all the way to some 50%. Okay. Now, you would think that international students would be one of the segments of immigration that would be well-received and understood because you would be developing skills to be an active participant in the economy and in society. But the problem is we've got some of these private colleges that are basically just taking advantage of very high tuition fees for international students and pumping out worthless diplomas. So fine to crack down on those particular colleges, but how is this actually going to work? The impact that it's had is on the rental market in particular. And consequently, because of that rent crunch, it's had an impact on first-time home buyers. So at the exact same time where we're capping international students, it's got to come with some more heavy control of big investors, hedge funds, and other international players gobbling up houses, turning them into rentals for international students, charging an arm and a leg. So one absolutely fits hand in glove with the other. So the cap on international students is going to be part of this. You would think if we're going to have the issue regarding like uh, the minister responsible, uh, Mark Miller, saying the diploma equivalent of puppy mills, would it not be wise at the same time as imp implementing a cap is to have a list of accredited colleges, public and private, as to who indeed is doing the right thing on behalf of the international student and the money they pay for an education and the quality of? So while we do that, there's got to be further controls in the country about how and who and why people are buying homes and what they're doing with them. Now, you can't stop my next-door neighbor from buying a rental property, but we can have some controls of international purchase, of which there are some controls already place in the country, and the big investors, the head funds in particular, the black rocks of the world that are going to gobble up every house they can possibly get their hands on. And it's for them, it's just like the entire mindset of housing. It's equity, it's GDP, it's economic benchmarks, as opposed to a place to lay your head affordably and healthily. So anyway, you want to take it on, we can do it. Oh, and I had a couple people really quite dismayed that we talked about the concept of spaces shared, an opportunity for a senior, for instance, to bring 
in an international student, bring in some additional money, and to have some help with the chores. Of course, people will do it if they are so inclined. And yes, everybody has to be quite cautious with the vetting process and compatibility, but that is going to be a potential help on both sides for the senior and or for the student. And on that front, we had a social worker on the program last week talking about some of the emotional and mental upsides of having someone around. And, the, you know, it's hard to draw a really straight line between loneliness and the impact on your mental health and physical well-being, but it's very real. And so there's some 50% of the people in the province, around 50%, are 50 years of age or older. About a quarter of the population of the province is about 65 years of age or older. And loneliness has a potential to dig in as you age, whether it be with hearing loss or you've lost your partner and or the kids have moved out. And you can be alone and not lonely. You can be so- socially isolated and not lonely. Loneliness is its own standalone. Now, it does increase, obviously, if you're living by yourself, but it's been deemed as a public health issue, and obviously it is. If there's a 50% increased risk of dementia because of loneliness, it's very real. If there's an increase in uh, things like stroke and heart attack, then obviously we've got to be able to figure out how to deal with it, what type of supports can be broached by between you and your clinician, your doctor or nurse practitioner, whoever you see, but they talk about it really quite clearly as a distinct risk on your overall well-being. So they say social isolation significantly increased a person's risk of premature death from all causes, a risk that may rival those of smoking, obesity, and physical inactivity. Amazing. Poor social relationships associated with a 29% risk of heart disease, a 32% increased risk of stroke, loneliness associated with higher rates of depression, anxiety, and then the potential of suicide. So if and when you find yourself lonely, and if and when people who are in your community, your neighbor, your nan, your pop, your aunt, or uncle, and you know they are alone, which doesn't mean that they feel that loneliness that puts them in jeopardy, but I think we all owe it to each other to ensure that if and when you can play a role in trying to curb some of the loneliness people are experiencing, then that's probably a really great consideration. What do you think? How are we doing on the phone there this morning, David? I had a couple I wanted to get to, but... All right. I couldn't care less about the Oscars. I think I'm probably in the majority on that particular one. But this is just interesting. The, the nominations come down for the Foolish Old Oscars sometime this morning. But debuting or premiering on screens across the United States on this date 80 years ago in 1943, Casablanca. Humphrey Bogart, uh, Ingrid Bergman. It still stands the test of time today. If you've never seen Casablanca, you owe, your, owe to yourself to do exactly that. Some real catchy uh, lines that have endured the test of time. Here's looking at you, kid. And then right, here's a good one. Of all the gin joints in all the towns of the world, she walks into mine. The problems of these three little people don't amount to a hill of beans in this crazy world. I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. And then, of course, perhaps the best closing line in cinema history, we'll always have Paris. And last one, and this one is quite sad. You know, no death is more important than any other one. If you experienced loss in the recent past, our condolences. And, of course, making news headlines yesterday was the fact that we now learn that former cabinet minister and public service volunteer, volunteer firefighter, town manager out in Greenspond, Derek Bragg, has passed at the age of 59. Diagnosed with tongue cancer in June, gone in January. 
People are flowing in with their thoughts on Mr. Bragg, his contribution to public life, and you can do exactly that today. I'd only met Mr. Bragg on one occasion ever. I had spoken to him many, many times on this program. He was the minister in charge of various portfolios. 59 is an awful tender young age to go. So my condolences, well, on behalf of myself and David, my condolences to all his friends, his family, and his colleagues. Let's take a break. When we come back, we're looking forward to speaking with you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's begin this morning on line number two. Good morning, Peter. You're on the air. Good morning, sir. Calling uh, calling in with a very uh, heavy heart, um, thinking of all the Bragg family, all the residents of Greenspan. Uh, Greenspan is a community in Bonavista North. For those people that are not familiar with the community, it's absolutely one, absolutely one of the most beautiful places I think I've, I've ever visited. And uh, I've, I've been going there for 35 years. That's where my wife is from. And anyway, all that being said, I'm thinking of the family, all the Bragg family. Uh, the daughter, Alison, the grandchild, his wife, Beverly, and I'm thinking of Clyde, his brother. Um, getting getting to the story, I guess, to the main part of this conversation, uh, one of the things that, I, that we all know that know Derek or know of Derek was his amazing sense of humor. Oh, my God, he was such a funny person, including his brother, Clyde. Clyde is just like him. Uh, one of the things also that I wanted to mention here um, – his his love of flying. Myself and Derek were not are not pilots. We're not pilots, I should say. And one of the things that he said, one of the highlights of his job as a minister, his, was his opportunity to to fly in helicopter. And I had the same opportunity through a friend. Uh, we've we've passed many pictures back and forth and and told stories, uh, mentioned stories and different opportunities that we've had over the years. So anyway, I, I'm just I just wanted to to reach out and say that I'm thinking of all the family. I'm thinking of Derek and, and the person that he truly was. Um, he was so dedicated, as as it's been known numerous times, how dedicated he was to all the people and the people of his community, and mainly how how dedicated he was to his family. Such a beautiful person. And uh, I just wanted to... Uh, I wanted to say that, and and to all the listeners that knew Derek, um, I'm thinking of all of you as well. So I'm actually almost emotional here as I say it. I understand, Peter. Um, so the unfortunate reality is that when people join the ranks of politicians, a lot of the a lot of people in the country or people in the province lose sight of who they are outside of being a politician, and so consequently they, you know, they. They just turn into their label as opposed to a real person, which is a real unfortunate reality. It makes politics something that's very unattractive for most people in Canada. Uh, tell us about the circumstance of how you met Derek Bragg. Well, uh, I'm, I'm married to uh, Joy Carter from Ship's Island, from Ship Island, excuse me, from Ship Island, Greenspan. So myself and my wife have been together for 35 years, and that's where Derek is from. So over the 35 years, uh, I've been in his presence and his brother's presence and his family's presence very, very many, 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 many times. And I remember when when Minister Bragg wasn't feeling well, my mother's 80th birthday, my mother-in-law's 80th birthday last year. And my wife asked Eric if he would be able to, to read the, the letters for Joy's mom. And for Minister Bragg to say, uh, Joy, I, I, can't, I can't do it. I'm very sorry, but something is not right. 
it was his tongue cancer and he was unfortunately on that particular day he wasn't able to to read uh read and get up on the mic and that was the early signs and the early stages of what was to come and we found out early yesterday morning as was noted about minister bragg had passed and he had a, a courageous battle and we've been in contact with his family and and friends over the last, you know, uh, I guess you could say in the last month, especially with updates of his prognosis and his his inevitable passing of yesterday morning. So um, that's how I that's how I know him. I know him for 35 years through through my wife and through my wife's family. And Derek was the type of person that he loved everybody he was that kind of person he'd do anything for anybody and he did he he break his back to help anybody and and I, again my condolences to the family i'm thinking of all of them i'm i'm thinking of his brother clyde and uh he's uh, the town the town uh, manager of greenspan and anybody that knows uh, clyde as well they know how dedicated he he is to the community as as well as his brother was, and to the people of this province. So once again, I send my condolences to family, to his family and his friends. Uh, and I echo those condolences. And I'm sorry for your loss, Peter, loss of your friend. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, yes, uh, I'm thinking more of his family. He had a large, large, very large circle of friends. So I'm 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 speaking here on behalf of all those, all those people as as friends of him and and his family. And we appreciate you doing that. And thanks for your time this morning, Peter. Once again, I'm sorry for your loss. Yeah, uh, thank you. Um, again, it's his family's loss and, mm-hmm. and all the people Certainly. of this province. Yeah. Thank you, Peter. Rest in peace. Yeah. Thank you very much, Patty. I really appreciate it. You're welcome, Have sir. a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Okay. Thank you. Bye. Yeah, and again, I mean, it's kind of hard to know even how to say this. And again, like I said, there's no one death any more important necessarily than another because you may indeed have experienced loss and the general community at large may have never met or heard of your loved one. But of course, that grief is very, very real and as impactful as any notable, so-called notable person in the province or the country. But it is part and parcel about where we find ourselves is that, look, there's lots of reasons for people to not like or to despise or to hate politicians because it's easy to do. And it's a pretty common practice in many segments and sectors of of society. And fair enough, you can think and say exactly what you see fit. But then there's always just that missing uh, component that behind the tag of cabinet minister or member of parliament or MHA or town councillor or city councillor is the fact that there's someone behind that label, behind that tag. You may disagree in full with their politics. You may disagree in full with their effort. You might disagree in full with their political ideology or affiliations. But at some point, like even if you are sick and tired of every liberal politician in the country, Derek Bragg, by all accounts, was a good fellow. You know, and I admit it. I don't. I didn't know the man. I spoke to him on this program as a cabinet minister. Uh, I think I shook his hand one time when we were introduced, and that was years ago. But you know, not trying to be sappy or sucky, but behind the labels and the political affiliation is someone who's 
quite likely not as rotten as some people are willing to say that they might be. Now, there's some bad people in every walk of life, including in the world of politics, obviously, but not all. Let's take a break. When we come back, we're hearing some of the stories of random acts of violence. Uh, it was in Mount Pearl is the city in focus here. But what we also know is that it's not just here in the Northeast Avalon. As I mentioned yesterday, as we spoke about that story, I got a note from the Great Northern Peninsula talking about or recounting a random act of violence at a school there, also down in the Buren Peninsula. So it's more widespread that one city just grabs a few headlines here because of the nature of the crimes. But Don wants to talk about what's going on in Mount Pearl. Don't go away. Start your day off right. Get the latest updates on news, traffic, and weather conditions, plus interviews with today's newsmakers, your go-to source before you get on the go. 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays, your VOCM mornings. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Don, you're on the air. Yeah, good morning, Patty. Uh, thanks for uh, taking my call. Don Richards here in Baronie. Uh Early this morning, I had VOCM on, and I don't listen to news. A lot of it's Good news, maybe I'll listen more. But what in the world, Patty, is going on in Mount Pearl with these young people? It's a good question. I don't know, and I'm not sure anybody really knows. There's all kinds of rumbles and rumors about, you know, some of this is maybe initiation acts of violence into some sort of little gang or something or other. But investigations are ongoing and arrests have been made. But it is quite scary, I think, you know. And once again, it's not just Mount Pearl where we see these types of acts of violence, maybe random or otherwise, but it's a it's a story, and there's something to be concerned about here. And. Patty, did they have a refer to themselves by some name or something? Well, there was some stuff on social media that made reference to what they called, and it's terrible, what they're saying is the Mount Pearl Death Squad. If that's real, I don't know. Like, remember back so many years ago, there was lots of focus in the city of St. John's about the St. John's mob, but that's what has been seen on social media. I don't know how much veracity there is to it, but that's, that's out there. Good Lord, Patty, and I heard they were interviewing some of the folks in there, and it sounded like they were terrorized by these young people. Yeah, they're still looking for more information, whether or not you have uh, seen something in our dash cam video, the January 16th incident outside of the Reed Center in Mount Pearl. So there's still a lot left to be understood. The problem then becomes, let's just say they identify some of these people, there's arrests made, the likelihood that they are minors, consequently we probably won't get a whole lot of information about who they are, what they're all about, who their buddies are, because all of those privacy concerns when we get into the courts, but I guess we'll wait to see for more information come from the RNC, but I sure hope that whoever's involved and responsible and spearheading this is taken to task. I sure hope so. And Patty, if they turn around now start to attack adults, well, not everyone's going to stand for it. They're going to to, uh, stand up and defend themselves, wouldn't you think? Uh, Absolutely, 100%. So, and as far as, uh, for me, and anybody else, I'm not going to be terrorized by people like this. I'm going to defend myself. Like you would. You know what I'm saying? Absolutely, so would I. But other people must be thinking different things and goes this way. Uh, the police don't mind who they charge. This my opinion, you know what I mean? Just say that part again, sorry, Don. The police, they're in the business, hopefully protected, you know, I'll tell you they are, right? Yeah. But we all think differently. 
And my view is, police don't matter. They don't mind who to go to charge. You know what I'm saying? Uh, I guess so. And the concept of people defending themselves, 100%. I mean, if you're equipped to do exactly that, then uh, I'd be the first one to try to defend myself. The problem there... Let's give you an example like Patty. So you and I are walking on the trail, and you're coming up to me, and you're threatening me or whatever. And I stand my ground, and you come and attack me, and I hit you. The police are going to charge me if I go to them. Because I got to wait for you to hit me before I can defend myself legally. Yeah, I mean, technically, by law, that's true, yeah. Yeah, I got first-hand experience with that, right? Okay. Because 23 years ago, when I lived in the St. John's, I was walking on a long pond trail, and the young fellow attacked me. I stood my ground. I didn't wait for him to hit me. You know where I'm going with this? I guess so. I defended myself. Then, when I got back to my house, I phoned the police about it. I didn't like what they said to me. I won't tell you what they said to me. And I walked in with the police station. The reporter? You know where I'm going with this? I, I, I'll, I'll let you finish your thought. I'm going to guess you're going to say you okay. got charged. And I started to give the, the young uh, female officer in the office. She was on the computer. And I gave her the information. I told her stuff. And then I, she asked me a few more questions. And then I stopped. Because I told them what I did. See, I'm, an, I'm now viewed as a criminal. Because... I didn't wait for him to hit me. When he attacked me, I got home and I hit him. You know what I'm doing with this? So now I've assaulted him, you know what I'm saying? I know what you're saying. And you're viewing me as a criminal. So I stopped talking, and she asked me a couple more questions, and I stopped. I knew what I had done. She went out and got in the night sergeant and came in. And he viewed it. When I told him, uh, and he was talking to her, he viewed it. Now, by what I did, I stood my ground. He said, I'm agreeing to fight with him. I didn't view it that way. Okay, so let's cut to the chase. Let's cut to the chase. Did you get charged? What's that? Did you get charged? I'll tell you what happened. Please do. I stopped talking. He, He wasn't very polite with me and everything. I knew what I'd done. Because now I'm viewed as a criminal. Did you get charged? He said, he said to me, before he, he knew he was getting in my father, he said, when he comes in, we'll be calling you. And I looked right at him. I said, okay. sir, Don, you have to come in here. Don, I've got to get going here, but uh, last time, did you did you get charged with anything? No, nothing came, but that was the okay, end good. of it. Okay, good. But not everybody, if these young people go around, you know, if they call themselves the death squad, they're scandalous. Something's, you know, something got to give, right? Uh, it's certainly unsettling for most people. Uh, Don, I appreciate the time this morning. You take good care of yourself. Yeah, have a great day. You Thanks. too, buddy. All the best. Bye-bye. And you know what? With the whole concept of defending yourself, absolutely, right? Someone comes at you. I mean, for the most part, people will be wanting and willing to do that. But for many, it's easier said than done. 
you know, there's lots of people who talk pretty big smack that freeze when they're encounter something like that. And that's fair enough. Human nature. Not everyone's built for that kind of stuff. That's why it always kind of gets me when we talk about it in schools, right? Because bullying is not throwing punches. Uh, throwing punches in the salt. You know, bullying is making fun of your freckles. So, and then people say, well, just fight back. Some people are just terrified. And many people who talk like they would indeed be more than willing to fight back or stand the ground, what have you, have never thrown or landed a punch in their life because not everyone is equipped. Not everyone is built to do so. So some people are and more than happy to do it. And again, just one more time, this is not just the Mount Pearl issue. We've seen it in St. John's. I got two vicious videos from down the Buren Peninsula that someone sent me yesterday. So it's not just one of the one community or another. Uh, let's keep rolling here. Let's go to line number four and say good morning to one of the candidates running in the upcoming by-election Ward 4 here in the city of St. John's. That's Tom Davis. Tom, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. I want to pass along my condolences to Derek Bragg's family and friends. Fair enough. Um... As the um, city does five-year studies of collisions, and I want to jump into uh, the annual collision report that was released last year. And it, I, in, within Ward 4, there is actually um, 18 of the 33 most uh, highest rate of collisions is actually 18 of the intersections are within within Ward 4, and all but one of them are signaled. On average, within the city, there's 1,313 collisions per year, and uh, most common is rear ends and left-turning collisions. So we just did the test, uh, the pilot of the um, speed cameras, and Minister Sully has indicated that they are going to be rolling them out in 2024. They're not going to be treating them. The driver won't get the ticket. It's going to be the it's going to be the get the owner of the vehicle will get a ticket. So what I'd like to suggest, and uh, one of the, my one of my uh, campaign tenets will be that uh, we should also uh, be looking at at red light running cameras because we all know it. We see it. People, red doesn't mean speed up, or yellow doesn't mean speed up. Yellow means, in most cases, slow down. And and it, I know there's a hue and cry, but there's are some people who don't think they're good ideas. They feel like they're an invasion of privacy. Uh, these speed cameras or red light cameras, but it, you know, it, at the end of the day, we, you know, we've, we've got these difficult situations. The cost of police officers and maintaining their equipment, and and then the fuel that they need to burn to drive around, and, and just the shortage of of people even to do the job. And then you know, couple that with the pain and suffering, and also the increases in insurance from accidents. You know, to me, it's like a no-brainer. I mean, I. I know that Minister Sidley said they had 94,000 people speeding over 11 kilometers within a few months, which is incredible. And I know you asked yesterday, you you pondered how much a speeding ticket was. And so um, I figured for everybody's benefit, I just let people know what they are because at 94,000, they add up pretty quick. Uh, Passing a red signal is in $140. Um, one to ten kilometers is between fifty and three hundred sixty dollars, depending on um, whether it's your first, second, or third offense. Um, Eleven to twenty is between a hundred and and uh, four hundred fifty dollars, again depending whether it's first, second, third. Twenty-one to thirty is two hundred to six hundred dollars, and thirty-one plus is between three hundred and seven hundred fifty dollars per person. So. 
This would add up quickly. So in a three-month pilot project, of course, it was just letters warning people that you were caught. And, of course, 94,000 vehicles, that might be six or seven people got caught repeatedly doing it, knowing that they weren't going to get a fine. So 500 speeders per day. Then, you know, then they talk about the number of people that are going more than 20 kilometers an hour over the maximum speed. That was 25% of those 94,000 were doing exactly that. Even if you just use 100 bucks on the average, it's about nine and, almost $9.5 million. Cost recovery, you'd have it done in jig time. Red light cameras, I'm into it. One of my pastimes on my drive home every day from uh, work here is to make the left turn on the Kelsey. Ev- inevitably, at least one person blows to that red light every single day. So, I you know, invasion of privacy, I'm more inclined to lean towards public safety. And it is, can only be the owner of the vehicle that gets the, uh, the ticket because we don't want to go down the road of biometrics and facial recognition and stuff that you ding the person who's behind the wheel. If it's your vehicle, you're responsible for how that vehicle gets used. That's the only way we're going to be able to approach this. Then they talk, well, we'll need front license plates. Well, okay. I mean, we've got to slow people down around here. We just do. It is unnecessarily reckless and aggressive driving around the Northeast Avalon. I suppose it's probably that way in many parts of the province, but I spend the vast majority of my time here, and it's madness on the road. Absolute madness. You know, and it is, and we have, like many things, like moose vehicle accidents, and a lot of things in this province, we don't see the pain and suffering, the people who are in a rear-end rear accident and the rest of their life with back pain, and maybe not able to work, not able to lift their children anymore. I mean, I, mean, I, I, I believe firmly that you know, this is kind of part of the like the new future where we're going to rely on technology to do things that that is more efficient. And 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 uh, just as a quick aside, um, if you Google or ask ChatGPT 3.5 or 4, who is the person who scored the most goals in international soccer? All says the same thing. It says Cristiano Ronaldo. However, if you say if you ask the next, the question is, how many how many goals has Christine Sinclair? Uh, scored way more, like 50% more. So there is bias in 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 Google, obviously, and and within ChatGPT. But but again, it, I actually Google ChatGPT three four because I actually pay for it now, and uh, it gave me Christine Sinclair first. But then I realized when I asked it the exact same question as I asked Google at 3.5, it, it sure enough gave me didn't even mention Christine, which is kind of sad. But but I do believe that um, getting back to the technology, we do need to embrace it, and this is proven uh, technology that's used all around the world. Yeah, it's nothing new. I mean, speed cameras are a well-understood feature. I, I like the idea, and I think I'm in the minority because I get blistered pretty frequently when I talk about stuff like this, but proof's in the pudding. Three months in just paradise at Mount Pearl, 94,000 vehicles clocked going in excess of 11 kilometers an hour over the speed limit. It's it's an astounding number. It really, and truly is. Uh, Tom, contributing to our high insurance rates. Anyway, if anybody wants to reach out to me, Tom Davis in L.ca, you can have a look at my platform. I'd love to. Anybody looking for a sign on their uh, front lawn? Great. Thank you, everyone. Take care. Appreciate the time. Thanks, Tom. Take care. Okay, bye-bye. All right, let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Sean, you're on the air. Good morning, Patrick. How are you? Not too bad. Thanks. How about you? Uh, really good, thanks. Uh, I'll fill you in in a minute where I am. I'm on Transcan, actually, and I'm uh, just passed by um, roads of line. Some guy just blew by me. I'm doing 85, 90, and the whole road is covered in snow, and it's greasy. And this guy just flew past me in the outside lane. He had to be doing 120, probably. Trouble is, he'll probably hit somebody and not get hurt at all. And this is why this issue in St. John's is so important. 94,000 people. 
uh, and that's just the ones that we caught on those two areas where those cameras were. It's, it's unbelievable the state being used around St. John's, school zones, everywhere. And as you said earlier, we don't have enough people to police it, and I think the city is doing the right thing. Put those in everywhere we can. The only way to stop people from speeding is probably to hit them in the pocketbook, because then the insurance company will hit them in the pocketbook. But that's not why I called. Um, but regarding insurance, the more bad behavior behind the wheel, tickets and accidents that happened, we're all, for all intents and purposes, we're all in the same actuarial pool. So I had a clean abstract in the last couple of years, nothing on mine at all, but my premiums have gone up. Why? Because the rate of accidents and the volume and the prevalence of those types of issues here is causing me pain, and I haven't been, uh, well, I guess I haven't been caught doing anything, put it that way. So. Well, unfortunately, you're, you're absolutely right, and the victims of this are the ones that are paying for it with their lives. Uh, with speed and so on, but and then and, and like you're dead on, like you're spot on what you're saying. That that pool has to pay for everything, and it's sad that people get injured. And as Tom said a minute ago, and I echo what he's saying, that the you know that causes you probably life pain if you haven't been killed, uh, and it's terrible. And and innocent victims are everywhere, and uh, they're in hospitals and going through all of our services trying to stay pain-free or trying to get themselves in some semblance of, of decent life, all because someone was speeding. Speed causes most of the accidents because there's speeding. You have less options to, uh, to uh, avoid an accident. More often, you'll cause one. But I want to talk this morning. First of all, I want to say this. You know, Derek Bragg, I mean, dedicated man, uh, did a wonderful job in all of his portfolios. Um, I only met him, I think, twice, just at, at a function or two. But, you know, to his family and his friends, and for his dedication, I salute him today, and, uh, and all the politicians who put their lives out there on the line every single day and take a lot of criticism for what they come up with. But even at a sick, very sick time in his life, he took to the podium in front of the Federation building during the fishery issue. And, you know, not everyone could do that. So I congratulate uh, his life, celebrate his life at such a young age, the lose is terrible. So uh, that's my feeling on that today. Uh, but uh, just last night I heard on the news, a 22-year-old young girl was killed, and the RCMP, uh, out by uh, Arnoldsville, the Trans-Canada Highway, the RCMP are saying that it's suspected drunk driving by one of the parties driving. And uh, I wanted to mention this. You know, when I'm out doing my hiking and my biking, and usually in off, off, like off the Trans-Canada, obviously, I don't, I would never drive or ride a bike in the Trans-Canada. Uh, but um, down in the uh, offshoots, you know, around this province, we have some wonderful communities, you know. I mean, like, I love getting off the beaten track, take my bike, and, or go for a nice walk along the, along the roads, you know, in our, like across our province. I've been in most communities in the province at one time or another. But what I have been seeing since my days as a, as a criminal journalist back in, in the 80s, I have never seen so much uh, obvious uh, drinking and driving issues than I have now. I mean, the, the, the gutters and ditches around this province are filled with every kind of alcoholic beverage you can think of. Or, sorry, the containers that used to have alcoholic beverages in them that you can think of. And, uh, and I had to bring this up today because it seems to me that the punishments or all the advertising the government's been doing about 
you know, drinking and driving and not doing it. Uh, it just doesn't seem to be working. And, uh, and I think we have to take some serious, uh, or a very serious look at this and what will stop it. Now, I realize people who are, uh, you know, habitual drinkers, like that man out there in uh, Carbonara and hit that poor young guy on his bike, on his motorbike. Um, you know, you, you can't do much with people like that. There's only one thing, only one way to stop him, and that's put him away after all the offenses he's had. And even then, when he gets out, he's back at it again. And crocodile tears, I'm sorry, just don't work. It's just just pure luck that that young boy wasn't killed. But, you know, this 22-year-old woman, in the prime of her life, 22 years old, is dead today. How many more do we have to see that happen to? And the devastation in the families involved and so on. I mean, I think we've got to put some more teeth into the law. If you're caught drinking and driving, we know the routine. If you're stopped, you're going to get a pretty good fine and probably lose, lose your license for six months or a year. But then they're going back at it again. I think the only way to deal with this is, is to impose such serious uh, fines or punishment that that guy will never think about, or anybody else, because deterrence, because deterrence is the key. Nobody else will ever get behind a wheel and drive drunk or over the limit. Uh, and I think we need more deterrence. Well, they different provinces handle it differently, right? In the province of Quebec, it's not even 0. 0.08 in that province, it's 0. 0.05. So their tolerance is even less than what we put up with in other parts of the country. Then they talk about, you know, even for first-time offenders, the punishment is much more severe than it is in the rest of the country. Second-time offenders, you get that automatic uh, that wheel lock or the engine lock where you have to breathe into to allow you to be able to start your vehicle in the first place. So there are ways to combat it. And, of course, some drunk driving repeat offenders. It is a result of their alcoholism, that's for sure. There was a story I spoke to, I can't remember what it was, a couple of weeks ago, about a fella in BC who had been picked up for his 21st time. 21! Amazing! Apparently there's someone in Quebec who's been picked up 35 times. So for some people it's beyond reproach and maybe they're too far gone. But it's pretty common stuff and we know it to be true. Then you add in the fact that there's, it's seemingly fewer and fewer cruisers on the road or we see them very sparingly. I know they're out there somewhere, but you just imagine how many people have been picked up for it versus how many people have got away with it and got to their destination without being pulled over, but absolutely would blow over the legal limit. Anyway, Sean, I'll give you the final thought before I have to get to the uh, newscast. Well, as I watch an RCMP cruiser come in off the off the, or off the on-ramp coming on the Trans-Canada now, I think about that a lot, and these, these people, I mean, only had so many, you're absolutely right, but I think we've got to say, you're caught your car is no longer yours for at least a year. We're going to impound it for a year. Doesn't matter if you're paying, you know, uh, monthly payments on it and all the rest of it. It's gone. One year. Now, like, isn't that young girl's life worth that? I heard you say the other day, your son's on the highway all the time and you're really concerned about him. My kids are on the highway just like yours all the time. The thought that people are out there texting and driving and drinking and driving and we don't have enough people to police it, the only other answer is the most severe, uh, harshest punishment we can come up with, and that's to take the car for a year, and then you still get your your at least one year, maybe two years or longer. Uh, uh, you know, not allowed to drive for that length of time, and uh, and and I think that's got to be number one. And maybe you get a license plate. And by the way, I want to just just mention this before I go. Maybe you get a license plate with a special sticker on it or something 
that the police recognize as someone who's been fat drinking and driving, and they might pay more attention to you. But I don't know what's going on, but why did we pull those stickers off? Because now the police don't know whether your car is licensed or not. They actually got to take the time to stop you and investigate whether or no. not you actually have that car uh, license this year. No, they can. You know, they, I, they do a license plate reader. They don't have to pull you over to ask for a proof of uh, the copy. They can read that right there with the technology in the car. Uh, that much I had to try to figure out because I thought, why are we not giving out stickers? We don't because it's an unnecessary expense because they can read that license plate and know whether or not it's registered in the blink of an eye. Sean, i got to get to the news, but I appreciate okay, the time. Thank you for your time. Take yep. care. Bye-bye. Uh, very quickly before we get to the news, interesting note from a listener. leave his name out of it. He said, I'd love to see if service and L track duplicates of the cars breaching the speed limit on those cameras. I know of one fellow who loaned his car to a buddy for a few days. That buddy thought it was funny to speed through the camera numerous times resulted in 38 letters to the owner. Imagine doing that, thinking that's for fun. Uh, also seen on social media groups of young fellas getting together to speed through the area as a group to see if the camera would pick them all up. 94,000 isn't quite accurate. Probably not. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Stay informed and have your say on the news of the day with your VOCM. Join Linda Swain weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 p.m. for an hour of talk and discussion with decision makers and listeners like you. News Talk on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Well, today is day number two in the inquiry respecting the treatment, experiences, and outcomes of the Innu and Child Protection. Join us on line number three to talk about the inquiry is Brian Harvey. Good morning, Brian. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? I'm doing well, sir. Thanks for making time for the show. How are you? Good, thank you. Thanks for having me on. Happy to do it, Brian. What's your role? Uh, I'm the lead executive officer with the inquiry, supporting the commissioners in the pursuit of their mandate. What have we heard on day number one? Before we get into some of the mandate in terms of reference and guiding principles and what have you, what was featured yesterday? What did we hear? Uh, yesterday was the first appearance of Mary Pia Benwin. Uh, who is a, an Innu from Sheaji and was the first nurse, um, first Innu nurse in the community. Uh, and she joined the inquiry yesterday to speak to the commissioners um, and, and share her experiences in, in the community over the past several decades, and in particular in leading some of the um, community needs assessment work and, uh, and primary health care needs in, in response to the needs of the community. Inside the mandate, it says that the inquiry will look into the systemic issues, including what, Brian? Well, it's it's hard to say at this point. I mean, certainly the commissioners have had the opportunity over the course of the past year to visit both Natwashish and Cheheji and hear from community members as to their experiences in the child protection system and to learn a little bit about Innu history. That's some of the work that's continuing with the formal hearing this week. And, of course, the future work of the inquiry will include investigations into the deaths of six individual Innu children. So at this point, it's a little premature to be able to say what sort of systemic issues we expect to emerge. But we'll be looking at not just the experiences of the communities, but also those six individual cases to see if there's commonalities that can be drawn from their individual experiences in the child protection system and perhaps some of the circumstances that may have led to their uh, to their death. It's one thing to hear the testimony and hear the stories. Will this trigger investigations? It's hard to really speak to post-report uh, actions or accountabilities at this point. I mean, certainly we're looking into, uh, as I mentioned, those six individual deaths, but uh, the commissioners aren't mandated to make findings of um, uh, criminal or civil liability. But it's it's 
clear that there's an importance to this issue that has been identified by all the parties, um, not only the Inuit communities, but also the government of Newfoundland and Labrador, which established the, the inquiry and is resourcing the inquiry. So um, unfortunately, this inquiry is quite unique in, in a way in that we don't have a lot of experiences to draw from uh, past inquiries to deal with what a post-accountability framework or mechanisms might look like. Uh, but certainly the commissioners have turned their mind to that issue from the very beginning. And although I'm not certain that they can uh, identify steps that they will take in that, in that respect, I think they're absolutely live to that issue and will be considering it carefully to ensure that the report and their recommendations really provide the, the support and the guidance that we hope that every party to this inquiry needs. Brian, when they talk about the guiding principles, there's a reference to do no further harm. What's the starting point for James Igliorte and other members of the commission to talk about how to do no further harm? Because when you hear these traumatic stories being told, and stories of intergenerational trauma, there seems like there's automatically going to be some additional reliving of terrible experiences. So how do the commissioners approach the concept of do no further harm? Well, I mean, you're absolutely right. It's it's exceedingly difficult, particularly dealing um, with subject matter that is quite so intensely emotional and, and personal and individualized, but also considering the experience of the Inu peoples and the Inu communities and their experiences um, in living in Newfoundland, Labrador, and in Canada over the past decade. So um, it's, it's exceedingly difficult. What we have done in this inquiry, which I believe is unique, at least in Newfoundland Labrador, is to really place a strong emphasis on healing supports and services. Uh, although the ideal is to do no further harm, we are absolutely live to the issue that uh, this testimony and uh, people presenting and participating in the community meetings, their stories, their experiences are absolutely emotional, uh, traumatic in many regards. And so we have been working closely with the uh, strategy in the First Nation and the Mutual in the First Nation uh, to identify healing services and supports under their leadership, but with our the inquiry's healing services consultant, we're working closely with them to make sure that uh, supports are available to everyone participating in the community meetings, in the formal hearings, as well as to members of the community that may be watching the proceedings via live stream or coming out to the proceedings to sit and listen directly for themselves. So um, it's, it's a significantly difficult issue uh, and it's, it's an optimal outcome to do no further harm. Uh, we're, we're undertaking every measure that we can to, uh, to reach that outcome. But um, as you indicated, it's, it's not necessarily something that can be done um, easily or readily. And, and so we're taking best steps in collaboration with with the ANU and with the provincial and federal governments to provide the support and services that may be of assistance. Brian, help me understand or elaborate on one of the systemic issue uh, areas of focus. It says the reasons for ANU involvement with child protection. Can you tell me what that means? Well, I think that uh, that can probably cut across a few different reasons. But I think that, and you know, and I wasn't party to the negotiation of the terms of reference, but I think my understanding of that issue in particular is to try to understand why uh, as the Department of Children, Seniors, and Social Development has reported in several annual reports that they have tabled in the legislature, I think that they have noted that there is a dis- disproportionately high incidence of Inuit children having interactions with the child protection system. And I think the, the mandate is directing the commissioners to try to understand why that is the case. 
when an Inuit child has been brought into child protective services, is it always the case that they're taken out of the community? Because that's one of the stories that I've heard in the past. You know, a child will be taken, next thing they find themselves not in an Inuit community, not even in the province or in Saskatchewan or where have you. So is that the case 100% of the time? No, I wouldn't say that's the case 100% of the time. And certainly uh, it is my understanding that um, there are there's an increased level of collaboration between uh, government social services, child protective services, and Inu child protection workers and the Inu, the Mushua Inu and Sheshi Inu uh, departments of social health. And so there's an increased focus on ensuring that uh, you know, the best interests of the child are placed in a paramount position, and one of the key factors to maintaining uh, that focus is to try to maintain wherever possible a connection with an, a child's cultural identity and community, family and kin. Uh, certainly there will be some times where the best interests of the child may require them to uh, be placed outside the community. Um, Sometimes it may be down to a lack of availability of uh, kinship or foster care. Or with respect to your statement on children going to Saskatchewan, sometimes it's the need for children to receive uh, enhanced uh, health care services or um, mental health uh, treatment that are not available at facilities in Labrador. So uh, certainly there's been an increased um, capacity built up in the communities and there's a uh, government has taken great strides to improve its collaboration and its uh, collegial relationship and working with the communities to try to ensure that Inu children, to the extent possible, are kept in their communities and provided the services that they need in the communities. Um, but, you know, I can't say that it, that's the case in 100% of the time. Uh, and, and ultimately, the best interest of the child must be paramount. Uh, anything, else, anything else you'd like to add this morning, Brian? Uh, no, I don't think so, uh, Patty. You know, I think maybe just to say that the commissioners regret that they were unable to join you themselves this morning. Of course, they're, as we speak, they're in the hearing room, um, hearing testimony from the witnesses that are appearing before them this week. Um, you know, but they asked me to convey their appreciation for your giving us the opportunity to speak about the inquiry and perhaps an opportunity in the future for them to come on themselves and speak with you. And we'd welcome their time. And I appreciate yours this morning, Brian. Thanks for doing this. Thanks, Patty, very much. Really appreciate it. Take good care. You too. All right, bye-bye. All right, uh, there's a lot there. Uh, let's see. Will I take the bouquet before we get to the break? Let's do exactly that. Line number two, Juanita, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Doing well, thanks. How about you? Oh, not too bad. Thank you so much. This is Juanita from the West Coast, Deer Lake area. I just called in to see how much I enjoy your show, and I dearly love you. I appreciate that very much. Thanks, Juanita. <laughs> You're kindly welcome. That's it for today. Oh, great. <laughs> A good bouquet. I appreciate that. Take good care of yourself. And you too, sweetheart. Take good care. Bye, Bye Anita. Nice. Bye, gorgeous. Bye. There you go. That was nice. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, Don's in the queue to talk with the passing of Derek Bragg, and then lots of time for you on a topic of your choosing. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let us go to line number one. Good morning, Don. You're on the air. Good morning. <clears throat> Just like to call in and, and offer my condolences to uh, Mrs. Bragg and her family. Uh, I'm not a liberal. Probably I would not. Never was. Probably never will be. But. Derek Bragg always impressed me as being a down-to-earth, honest individual who took his position very seriously and always spoke the truth to uh, his people that he represented. And the prime example, I think, was the crab situation there a little while ago. He, um, 
that really, really bothered him, and he really, really honestly tried hard to resolve that issue. Yeah, he's. Um, I think just think he was a quite like, a very honest man, and I don't have a lot of respect for many politicians, but I do have a lot of respect for him, even though I'm not a liberal. Well, he was right so. in the middle of that highly contentious and emotional issue, and to his credit, when the protest made its way to the steps of the Confederation Building, he went out. Oftentimes, they don't. So. Exactly. Exactly. They hide behind their office doors, but he went out and he faced the. The people, and and really, really, I think, as someone once said, wore his heart on his sleeve, and I believe that uh, he's going to be missed. He's going to be missed. Well, I can only speak from my experience, but when we requested time with him, he made time for the show. And a lesson that I don't think many politicians have been able to learn is that even if the person asking the question is not going to like the answer, an answer is better than silence. It always is. You can be involved maybe in a bit of a a heated to and fro and what have you, but people get extremely frustrated and angry when you ask a question of a politician and you can't get an answer. Even if it's one of the tiptoe tap dance answers, it's better than just silence. Yes, I, I agree 100%. And a prime example of that would be Mr. late Mr. John Crosby when he uh, called the moratorium. I mean, he faced uh, <laughs> he faced rebellion, but yet he stood his ground, told the truth, and uh, he, he kind of miscalculated the reopening of cod fishery. But I think that was more honesty and listening to the scientists rather than listening to everybody else. But uh, Mr. Bragg, God bless him. He's, uh, he was a good man. Fair enough, Don. And I suppose there will indeed be people who take the opportunity to be less than kind, but that's nature of the beast, unfortunately so, this day and age. I appreciate making time for the show, Don. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Yeah, I mean, it, it's one of those lessons that you think would be easily learned because, of course, there's going to be folks who, you know, they purposefully will point a finger and look and politicians are there to be criticized and questioned uh, and debated because that's exactly what they've chosen to do but they never seem to learn how to answer a question I mean it just becomes one of the frustrating things some politicians are not bad they'll do their level best to try to give you some detail based on a question that's posed by a citizen or me or uh, some journalist or what have you but others especially when it comes to voicemails and emails if you don't hear anything back that even remotely addresses your concern then What do you think is going to happen? People will be furious. And it's not just for individual politicians or parties. It's also for for corporate Canada. You know, whether it be a Crown Corporation or otherwise, not getting an answer just makes people mad. Understandably so. Let's go to line number two. Chris, you're on the air. Hi, how are you? Doing okay. How are you doing? I just have a little complaint about the uh, Newfoundland power situation. They shut off my power at 9 o'clock this morning. And it's for putting up uh, somebody's uh, electrical shed, putting lights in his shed or something. And uh, I'm on an oil heat. My, my pipes are about to freeze here. And uh, they, they cut it off for the whole street. And we have senior citizens that uh, I'm sure aren't very pleased right now, but I can feel the cold in my house coming in already. So this is a scheduled outage for some maintenance or something, or do we know what's happening? Well, well, I'm not sure really what if it was scheduled. I believe they did give us a notice, but the thing is, it's minus 15 degrees out right now and yeah. getting colder. Yeah. And they can't I don't think they should be allowed to be able to just totally shut off your place without actually providing some type of heating source. 
in the dead of winter. Yeah, I don't know how they would navigate that sort of replacement heat source, but... You know, and I have no idea why the power's off on Barnes Road. You know, maybe there's a possibility, and we'll see if we can uh, figure this out. Maybe there's a possibility that if work does not get done with the pending cold snap coming, it might have made things worse overnight with the power outage going at when it's minus 29 or whatever tonight. But we'll see what we can find out for you, Chris. Well, thank you very much. I mean, I understand there's there's things that have to get done, but I think there's a time and place where things have to get done. And I'm not sure if this was the right now, not knowing what is exactly going on, but to me, it looks like, uh, you know, just a personal service, you know, for one house that has impacted the whole street. Yeah, I wasn't even aware that this was happening, but I can check their website if they have any information available there. If I can find it, I'll talk about it here on the show. And also, maybe we'll see if we can get a, even an email response from Newfoundland Power speaking to your concern on Barron's Road. I'll see what I can find out. Hey, thank you very much. Appreciate all the best. The, all the best, Chris. Take care. Bye-bye. And, you know, with some of the pockets of the province that have experienced extremely cold temperatures, and, of course, it's even worse on the heating your home and the pressures on the grid when the wind picks up, which apparently is going to be part of it tonight. Newfoundland Labrador Hydro say they're prepared. And, of course, it's one thing when you have serious power being consumed because of cold temperatures in parts of the province which are not really highly densely populated areas. It's when it really hits some of the big population centers where we'll see if the grid can stand up to the cold weather and the need to people for people to be warm. All right, let's go to line number three. Say good morning to the Director of External Affairs at Memorial University Students' Union. That's our friend John Harris. Good morning, John. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thanks for taking my call. No problem at all. What's on your mind today? So I just wanted to give you uh, and your listeners an update on the situation. I had called a couple weeks ago, and uh, another member of our community, uh, Elise Thornhill, called about. Uh, this is on the the two sisters that are that are trying to reunite with their brothers who are currently in a war zone in, in Gaza. Uh, so I just wanted to say a big thank you to you know the members of the public that uh, came to the GoFundMe and, and uh, donated. We've we've raised about nineteen thousand of the fifty thousand dollar goal so far. Uh, so we're almost halfway there. Um, so yeah, I definitely wanted to give a big thank you to your listeners and uh, anybody who who could contribute uh, to that. Um, in terms of the visa application, uh, like like I was talking about before, there are a thousand visas that the government of Canada uh, is giving out. Uh, we don't think that's enough. It's the visitor visas, uh, and they're, everybody's competing to to get these thousand visas. And unfortunately, with their visa application, there has been absolutely no movement in uh, getting these brothers over here. We don't even have a, a case number. Uh, it was submitted. On the eighth, uh, on the ninth of January, and we haven't heard back at all from the IRCC. Uh, so that's 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 another thing I wanted to talk about to you, Patty. Is it simply a visa issue, or are they are they like stuck? Because there's some issues regarding being able to even get out of Gaza. Yeah. So so right now the the, the boys are still in in Rafa. Uh, it, and it, it is a visa issue. It's uh, there's there's no uh, you know channel uh, way to get out of Gaza uh, in this in the middle of this you know absolute bombardment of, of civilians. I mean we've seen over twenty thousand people dead uh, in Gaza. Um, you know half of those being children. It's it's really uh, you know there there is no safe place in Gaza right now. There's there there was kind of talk of that. You know, if you move to the south, which the boys did, uh, then you would be safe in the south. That is no, not the case at all. Uh, they're 
in neighborhoods that are seeing uh, missiles being fired onto the you know neighbor uh, beside them. Uh, like there's there's a uh, is a real real humanitarian concern here, and and we're really just trying to to get as much uh, information as possible. Uh, we did. Uh, luckily, we met with MP Joanne Thompson uh, about two weeks ago, and uh, she had said that she'd be going through the channels to try and find some uh, more information. Uh, we haven't heard back from her yet, uh, but we're looking forward to that. Um, as well, we're looking to meet with their MP, Seamus O'Regan, uh, who has uh, said that he would meet once he's uh, up to up to speed. Uh, so we're definitely looking forward to getting some more information from uh, from him uh, and both both those MPs. Uh, but yeah, this is this is what it is. We're we're waiting. We're we're they're trying to get any updates that we can, uh, and we're we're. We're just hoping that that we can get these uh, boys to safety before uh, it's too late. Because the, the reality of it is, it is a very dangerous place to be. Obviously, so. Uh, before we run out of time this morning, John, has the students' union or you yourself crafted any reaction to the federal government's decision to put a cap on international students? Well, I, I think that this cap on international students is a real admission of a failure on the part of the federal government that. Uh, it wasn't able to uh, secure the housing stock it needed for growth. I think that you know we need, especially in this province, we need to have a growing economy. We need to have a growing uh, population. And to put a cap and to use these kind of scapegoat politics that is the fault of international students because of our housing crisis, I think that's just a bit, a, a bit uh, ridiculous. And I think you're passing the buck on to uh, people that only came here to uh, try and, you know, uh, get an opportunity and grow the province. And, and I think they do a, a, a fantastic job of it. So I, I think the answer is not uh, I think this is a real admission of failure that this that all of the government weren't able to uh, provide the housing stock necessary and to to we have a housing crisis, not because of international students, but because of decades and decades of underfunding. And if they're using the excuse that they're trying to deal with these private colleges that are churning up fairly worthless diplomas, you know, if there's going to be a cap, maybe they can undertake the exercise to have an actual comprehensive list of accredited colleges, public and private, that they will indeed see student visas approved for. Because if you're just going to throw a 360,000 number out there and put a cap on it, then you're not necessarily dealing with the problem colleges, period. So you can't have one without the other to make, you know, reasonable public policy. Absolutely, because there's no there's no measure in that to stop these uh, colleges from uh, continuing on. Like if if you're worried about the colleges and the and the no good diplomas, then tackle that issue. Sure. I think this is another case of scapegoat politics. I, I'm I'm uh, I'm definitely concerned about this province because you know I know Memorial is with a huge cut to their operating budget. They get a lot of their revenue from international students. Uh, I don't think that's a, a, a good way to go in, in terms of the future of uh, our province. And, you know, I, I'm not really familiar with international students coming to this province and getting uh, bad degrees. I, I think we have great institutions here like uh, Memorial and, and CNA. And I, I think that it's just not applicable to our province. So uh, definitely, definitely con- concern uh, coming from the, our, the student union. Appreciate the time this morning, John. Thanks for this. Thanks, Patty. Have a good one. You too. Bye-bye. John Harris, Director of External Affairs with Munsu. Let's take a break. Don't go away.
Your voice in Newfoundland and Labrador's biggest conversation. If you want to know what's happening in your province, tune in to Open Line every day. Have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m. on Open Line with Patty Daly on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Uh, let's see, line number one. Colin, you're on the air. Good morning, Mr. Daly. How are you this morning? That's kind. How about you? Good, thanks. Good. I want to talk about a... Uh, a civil matter in uh, going through the courts in Quebec. Uh, a man there is uh, suing the police. Um, he's uh, a suspect in the disappearance of a nine-year-old girl. Uh, her name is Cedrica uh, Provencher. She disappeared in the Trois-Rivières region of Quebec in July of 2007. In 2015, a hunter found her skeletal remains and uh, it was confirmed that it was the missing girl. This man <clears throat> has been pretty much from the beginning of the in, uh, investigation by police. Uh, he's been a suspect uh, in this investigation. The police have publicly named him as a suspect. And uh, he's never been charged criminally with anything related to that disappearance and, and obviously uh, the killing of this ch- uh, young girl. Uh, police have tried some rather elaborate and sophisticated uh, techniques in their investigation to try to elicit a uh, confession or admission of guilt from this man. They did a, a Mr. Big sting operation uh, that came up empty. They um, got uh, court orders to uh, put a uh, tap on his phone of uh, his phone, his family and friends to see if he would say anything to them in in casual conversation about the disappearance. That also came up empty. Uh, Police traced down six red four-door Acuras uh, that were seen in the area. There was one car, sorry, that was in the area that was picked up on security camera at the time she disappeared and in the region where she disappeared. Uh, police uh, did a DMV check. There were six of those vehicles in the province of Quebec. Five of the owners had alibis for for where they were at the time of the dis- disappearance of this girl. Um, he didn't. And based on that, he became a suspect. And now he's uh, suing the police. The police are still naming him as a suspect in this killing. And the only reason that they're naming him as a suspect is that they can't exclude him from the from the suspect list. So I saw I saw the story. I think he's suing the uh, government for $10 million, if I'm not mistaken. So yes, he is. part of the problem here is that, the, you know, I think the news story read something like this. The way they're handling what should be uh, exculpatory, exculpatory, exculpatory information is that, you know, they say that certain pieces of information may jeopardize the case against him and or whoever is responsible for the death of the child. But... And they want to argue this in front of the judge. Now, you're, you're familiar with the story, so I might get this wrong. The lawyers for the Crown want to simply argue this in front of a judge with no representation of Mr. Betes in the court period, which seems like a pretty sideways, unfair way to approach what should be disclosed to the defense counsel, or I guess in this case, the litigant. So it's a strange story everywhere you look at it. Yeah, it's uh, you know, there's the civil aspect of this, and I don't know how that's going to play out. No you know, uh, you know, uh, that that's for the civil lawyers uh, to to uh, 
to hash out in front of a judge. The police are claiming, you know, privileged uh, information and privileged communications and stuff like that. But it has to be remembered here now that he's not charged. This is a civil matter. This is not a criminal matter. So he's not presumed innocent. He, you know, uh, he doesn't get the right to a fair trial. He doesn't get uh, the automatic right to full disclosure that you would get if you were a criminal, criminally accused, right? This is a civil matter, but it, it, it extends over into criminal in that he's – you have a police force that's named as a, a private citizen as a suspect in the child killing. And this is going back 17 years ago now. Police have no leads – um, on this case, uh, much less any reasonable and probable grounds to believe he did it, or they would they'd go to a judge. Uh, they would lay that before a judge and, and have a judicial officer issue a warrant for his arrest, or the police could arrest him on their own and then lay a charge, you know? And then one of the things that they have dangled out there is that he refused to take a polygraph, which is an unfair characterization of someone's innocence or guilt. You know, he says under the stress that he's facing and the fact he doesn't trust the police, he doesn't want to submit to a polygraph, which is his right. But when cops dangle that out there as some sort of additional layer of suspicion, that's pretty unfair. Yeah, you're under no legal obligation to submit to a polygraph test. No. None. The Supreme Court of Canada said you're not. The, the, the results of a pass or fail on a polygraph that can be used as reasonable and probable grounds to arrest you. So that can provide evidence to arrest you when they charge, but it, but it can't be used as evidence in court to prove your guilt. Sure, it's unreliable. Uh, yeah, uh, that's right. Was this fellow... Sorry, the statement itself can be used against you, though. Sure. Was this guy charged with some sort of crime against a child, though, in addition yes. to this uh, investigation? Yes, he was. He was charged with possession of child pornography, and then he was ultimately acquitted of that charge. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I very quickly scanned the news story. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, it's, it, and this could happen to anybody. You know, he doesn't have an alibi. He's under no obligation to put forward an alibi to police. He's under no obligation to even speak to the police or do anything for the police. The police said he doesn't have an alibi, so that obviously raises their suspicions. Well, I mean, you know, the police could knock on your door to- tomorrow and ask, ask you where you were six months ago. And you might not have an alibi, you know. Uh, they tracked down a car uh, that was seen in the area at the time she disappeared. This young girl disappeared. He's, he's the registered owner of one of those makes and models of the cars. The police had said, as you just said, that he refused to provide a polygraph test. He didn't refuse. He declined, you know, which is his right. He, he's under no legal obligation to speak to the police or do anything for the police. So here you have a private citizen who's been publicly named as a suspect in a child killing. And the police are at a stalemate here with their investigation, as far as I know, is with, with regard to furthering the criminal investigation and subsequently charging him or anybody else uh, criminally with the, uh, with the killing of this uh, nine-year-old girl. So he has to go around now the rest of his life as a suspect on the, on the suspect list because the police are unable to clear him. And that's what they said publicly. They're not able to clear him, so he's still on the list. So, I don't, you know, for public policy reasons and fundamental justice and, and uh, due process, it, it just seems patently unclear to me. Well, 
you know, there's human nature also associated with uh, when people hear that someone is a suspect or they see them making the perp walk at Atlantic Place, then far too often they've already been convicted in the, the court of public opinion, which is patently unfair once again. There's a lot, a lot of real problems with that thought process or that mindset. I'll give you the final thoughts, Colin, before I take another call. You know, he's not been charged with anything, but he is in a police database now. He's at the top of the list on the, on the homicide investigation for a child killing. So what about his employment prospects? If he were to apply for a job and he needed a vulnerable sector check, he's probably not going to be able to get that. If he applied for, I don't know, to an educational institution, he wanted to be a, uh, a social worker or a, a doctor or a nurse or somebody else who works with vulnerable people or he wanted a job working as a licensed practical nurse or working in a long-term care facility, he's not going to be able to get one of those vulnerable sector checks. International travel, because especially to the United States, that's probably going to pop up on American immigration that he's a suspect in a killing. So he's probably going to, he may end up being denied entry there too, right? So this has very serious ramifications for somebody who's on a list. The police put, put you on a list as a suspect, and they are unable to clear you, and you remain a suspect. I appreciate the time and the, the, the conversation, Colin. Thanks for this. Thanks, Patty. Take Cheers. care. Bye-bye. Bye. I mean, you know what it's like, right? If And if someone's been branded as a suspect in something like that, the killing of a nine-year-old child, that sticks. You know, so for this guy, was it 16 years later? Now he's trying to sue the government and their approach to this particular investigation and his alleged role in the death of a child. Amazing story. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, Andrew wants to talk about the Highway Traffic Act, and Gerald wants to talk about first responders. Talk away. Welcome back to the show. How let us go, line number three. Andrew, you're on the air. Hi, Penny. It's Andrew here. I, uh, what got me roll up today is... Uh, I got an email from uh, motor registration telling me that my car, the place in my car, has been brought back to motor registration because I took insurance off. And this is a car I've got the last 10 years. Uh, every every year since I've been taking the insurance off the car in uh, October and putting it back on in May. It's a summer car. I just use it for the summer. And now uh, they tell me that uh, you know I've got to uh, take the plates off and uh, or put insurance on it for the full year, which like, I keep the foreign theft on it, but I take liability and collision off it. Why do I have need collision liability on a car that's parked in my garage for six months? Fair enough, because that's exactly what I was going to ask. I mean, is it enough just simply to have fire and theft insurance on the vehicle? But apparently you do, but you just took away collision and liability, and you still have to give back the plates. Strange. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's what that's what they t- they tell me, and uh, you know, uh, so you know, what kind of a hassle is this? You know, they they got rid of putting stickers on uh, places that had so much of a hassle. So now they're going to uh, get. I'm sure there's towns of us out there that it's in the same boat. You know, I, I'm sure that probably uh, RVs and trailers and all any you know any vehicle has got uh, they got to have insurance out. Huh? That they only use six months a year, so we, we got to bring out all, all of us got to bring our plates into motor registration. Like myself, I'm an hour and a half away from motor registration. You know, it's, it's a half of inconvenience. So I just, where did the government come up with this? You know, I, I've been doing it for ten years now. They all of a sudden started this. We need full motor registration, and uh, you know, under the uh, what is this 
75.1, and it says uh, vehicles must have insurance on it. Listen, you know, why would you need insurance if you're not driving it? I suppose you get caught up in the fact that, uh, you know, caught up in the issue regarding just how many people are caught driving without insurance. And so consequently, when they are red flagged, that insurance has been removed from a vehicle. Because that's some of the, some of the tricks people play, right? Is they get a vehicle, they get insurance, so they can get it registered, they get the registration done, and then they take their insurance off to save the money and drive around without insurance. So you get caught up in the bad behavior of others. Interesting question, though, about trailers and what have you, because the vast majority of people who have travel trailers probably do not use them in the wintertime. Well, some people would, but most people wouldn't. I wonder, is there an exemption for those types of, those classification of vehicles? I didn't even know this was a thing, because I have buddies who have summer vehicles. I don't. I drive my big, my rig year-round, but I know guys who do indeed park their vehicle for the for the winter and, you know, break out their SUV or what have you. So I'm going to ask, ask around and make sure that they're getting the same letter. Because I hadn't heard of this. This only, this only happened this year. Like I've been doing it for 10 years. I had no problem. So now, all of a sudden, this came in that way. And the thing is, I pay I pay for a four-year registration. You know, sort of the car is registered for a full year. You know, it's not like uh, I'm only, only cutting the registration off. I still have to have my registration on it. Yeah. So I don't know if they'll give me back half my registration or what, you know. Anyway, just just to me, the only people that they're interfering is like us. I don't think it's going to help them at all with these people who go drive without insurance. No, if they're willing to do that and take the risk to themselves and everyone else, they're going to keep doing it regardless of this uh, measure taken by the government. I hadn't heard about this issue. I guess we'll have to reach out to Minister Studley's office to see if they can give us either some time with her and or some better understanding is, is what I thought probably the catch-all here. Because so many people are doing it, and this will not be a deterrent for someone who's willing to drive without insurance, but folks like yourself, you have two decisions here. Either got to go through the inconvenience of bringing back the plate to motor vehicle, and then come the spring, got to go back the motor vehicle get the plate when you put the insurance back on it or they have some exemptions based on you know historical context and the rest so i'll see if i can get some info andrew and i appreciate letting you know about this yes okay and like uh, you know kelly penny she seems to be the head of motor registration now i don't know if she brought this into effect like i was told that this is this rule has been into effect for years but they haven't enforced it but i'm just wondering uh, you know did it read the act right like you know you're driving you're not supposed to drive your car with insurance. Let's just have a parking in garage. Yeah, it's an interesting one. It's the first I heard of it, but I will follow up. Is, uh, is the Minister Elvis uh, Loveless? Is he still the Minister? Of, uh, He's the Minister of Transportation. I don't know if this falls under the auspices of Service NL, which I think it does. Just let me, I can find that out pretty quickly because whatever the right department is, we can absolutely try to get some information here because you're going to be one of many who are opening up their mailbox to find this particular issue. So let's see here. Da, 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 da. Uh, Minister, it does not list uh, under her responsibility, so let's see if it's Elvis Loveless, and we'll see if we get time with uh, the minister responsible. Or is it John Abbott Minister of Transportation these days? I think it's John Abbott, right? He just moved into that portfolio? John Abbott. And that's probably right. Uh, Doesn't list it, but I can figure that out uh, during the break here, and I'll get the information and talk about it on the show. Okay, great. Thank you very much, Peter. Thank you, Andrew. Bye-bye. Take care. So what minister is responsible for motor vehicle? I thought it was service NL, but could be wrong. I'll figure it out. All right, let's go to line number two. Gerald, here on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning to you. Uh, calling from the town of Arnold's Cove. Uh, just take a few minutes of your time. 
sure. and your listeners. Uh, as you know, uh, first of all, I'd like to send out uh, love, prayers and thoughts to the family who, of course, involved in that tragic accident out here close to the Arnold's Cove intersection this, this Sunday. Uh, I'd like to uh, really reach out to them and send them the best, of course, at this time. But at the same time, going in the direction, I'd like to send out a bouquet to all the RCMP officers, the ambulance drivers, tow truck operators, and, of course, our Arnold School Fire Department, everyone who responded and did their utmost best to take care of that scene and the whole area which involved a lot of traffic tie-up, which really, to me, had to be done in order to take care of the situation took place. The bouquet really needs to go out to all those responders. They did a wonderful job, but at the same time, it's not something anyone wanted to be faced with, I can assure you. And we hear too often that these things happen and the reasons why. Look, I mean, when we talk about the things that most of us can't even imagine, the horrific scenes that the first responders come upon and what it must mean for their mental well-being, it's extraordinary stuff, and we can never thank them enough. And I'm not going to try to make the difference between a uh, a paid volu- a paid firefighter and or a volunteer firefighter because when you come, come upon the scene, the person who's injured, killed, maimed uh, doesn't care whether or not you're paid or a volunteer because they see some horrific stuff. Yeah, for sure, Patty, because there's a couple of individuals close to here in Arnold's Cove who came up on that was right right at the very instant that it took place, and they're still dealing with that today. Yeah. Uh, Patty, also, I'd just like to, while I'm on your, on your line and, and listeners, I'd like to throw out another couple of vocations. There's a couple of friends of yours who listen to you pretty much frequently when they can, uh, Brother Jim and uh, Brother Broad. They're probably listening today, so just a bouquet to them and get on the line and and uh, speak your piece whenever you find the time to do so. And one of your previous listeners, uh, Jeff, he touched on about uh, our uh, politicians that he probably didn't care too much for them, but uh, listen, they got a job to do too, and they're individuals. And I'll send out a bouquet today to. Uh, Mr. Jeff Dwyer, who is probably, I can say, pretty much a resident of the town of Arnold's Cove here now, mostly from time to time. He's the member, of course, for Presidential West Bellevue, this wonderful district, and a bouquet to him. I think he's doing a wonderful job and a uh, lot laid on his shoulders in this area and and, and what he covers. So, uh, Jeff, to you, my friend, a bouquet. And Jeff, uh, try and get out there and do your utmost best, and I'm sure when the time comes around, there'll be a few voters out there for you again. Not saying I vote, vote either one way or the other, but anyway, Jeff, have a good day. Thanks, Patty. I appreciate your time, Gerald. Take care. Okay, bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. <laughs> good stuff. Uh, Michael, you stay right there. I don't want to squeeze you up against the 11 o'clock news. In regards to the seasonal vehicle, I've got a bunch of responses already to it, and thankfully so. So, and it is the minister responsible is uh, Sarah Studley. So, this is from someone in the insurance business. They say the new seasonal vehicle setup that the MVR has instituted is poorly thought out. The government has decided that you need to declare you will only drive your vehicle between the months of April and September and face fines if you drive outside that period. It's a mess. I'm paraphrasing. Then there's another guy who says that he's actually doing some work for someone and his buddy got the same letter from a motor vehicle. And he says... 
the buddy was freaking out, and then he was told by motor vehicle that they said, uh, ignore the letter. So which is a motor vehicle? Is it a requirement, as described by Andrew, that you must keep full insurance, collision liability, fire, theft on the vehicle that's parked in the garage during the winter months? We'll try to get to the bottom of it, but it does seem to be a little bit cockeyed. If it's as simple as making the formal declaration that you're not going to drive your summer vehicle during the winter months, then maybe it won't be the case of having to bring the license plate back to motor vehicle, which of course would be an inconvenience to say the least, and or suffer some pretty significant premium costs when you talk about full comprehensive insurance on a vehicle that doesn't see the light of day through the winter months. So anyway, we'll see if we can get down to the nitty gritty on that one and try to figure out exactly what's going on and whether or not this is going to be applied across the board. I'm also told, I wondered out loud whether or not there would be some exemptions for certain classifications of vehicles, notably for RVs. Apparently they are not uh, excluded from this. They also have to carry the full insurance as described by the caller Andrew. All right, quick check in on the Twitter. Where VOCM Open Line follows there. Email address is open, open line at VOCM.com. But my favorite is when you pick up the phone and give us a shout, just like Michael. If you're in the St. John's Metro region, it's 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. We're taking a break, and then we're coming back. Get lost in the music of legendary artists like Elton John, The Beatles, and more. Join Claudette Barnes every Sunday from 12 to 1 p.m. and relive fond memories through the power of music with Sunday Melodies on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go. Line number four. Good morning, Michael. You're on the air. Yeah, Patty, how are you today? Doing great. How you doing? Uh, pretty good. I'm just going over flights going in to Newfoundland from Ontario. Uh-huh. And I was just looking at the prices, and they're staggering. They're very expensive. Like, uh, I think it was like a thousand bucks just for the ticket alone, right? From Pearson to Gander, and then you got to pay for your bag down and your ba- bag back. That's like eleven hundred and change. I flew to Spain two years ago for twelve hundred return. Oh yeah, I mean there's there's a lot cheaper options to fly in and out of Newfoundland versus somewhere else domestically in the country. You can get better deals to fly to Europe, as you point out. It's extraordinary how costly it is. I went to Barcelona and like across the pond, you know, when it's like very very it's cheaper to go to Europe from Toronto than it is to go to Newfoundland. I bet you from St. John's to Labrador is probably fifteen hundred. Every bit of it. Yep. Yeah, and it's insane, isn't it? Flying domestically has long been a costly problem. You know, so we've got a competition issue, right? Because whenever the two big carriers, notably Air Canada and WestJet, whenever some of the smaller, lower-cost carriers get involved, then, of course, the big ones, they have the opportunity to put the financial pressure on them with a couple of seat sales. And next thing you know, the small operations without a whole lot of cash to control overhead, they get kind of squeezed out. Then it's the kind of domination that they have with the airports as well. So, you know, the competition issue is very real. Some of the low-cost carriers that are able to service places in the United States and in Europe they have a different set of circumstances than we do. You have to have the vast majority, I think it's 80% or more of domestic money invested in a low-cost carrier. So elsewhere in the world, whoever finances it, they allow them to apply for landing fees and applications for routes. In this country, we make it much more difficult. Yeah, you can go all-inclusive for what you would pay to go to Newfoundland. You can go to probably Cuba or Dominican for like a week, all-inclusive, right? Yeah, I haven't priced one of those in a long time, to be honest. 
Yeah, I, I priced earlier. There's some good deals now, but uh, that's what my topic was. It's just like it 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 scares people away from uh, flying within Canada. You know, they probably like go somewhere else for for their, for their money, right? Yeah, there's. But that said, the percentage of bounce back for Air Canada and WestJet to pre-pandemic levels is pretty strong. So people are yeah, still what, flying. They're just biting the bullet. But WestJet don't go to Gander no more. They no. called me there last week, right? Yeah, they've bailed on a lot of routes in Atlantic Canada. And and Sunwing don't go there as well. Right. So the only option you got is Air Canada. That's it. Which is why I say we have a competition problem, because if there's only one game in town, they got you where they want you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's my topic, Patty, and happy New Year to you. The very same to you, Michael. Thanks for the call. Okay, bye. Take care, bye-bye. Yeah, I mean, flying in the country is absolute madness, and he points out the price of a ticket to come from Labrador to fly to just the island. I mean, you can absolutely pay more for that ticket than you can for the trip that Michael describes from, say, Toronto Pearson to Barcelona, whatever the name of the airport is there. All right, let's keep rolling here. Let's go to line number one and say good morning to the PC member for Terra Nova. He's the opposition critic for energy and technology and, I guess, innovation. That's uh, Lloyd Parrott. Good morning, Lloyd. You're on the air. Morning, Patty. How are you? Best comment. How about you? I'm doing well. Happy New Year. I don't think I've talked to you since uh, the New Year rang in. Welcome back to the show. Happy New Year to you. Uh, Patty, I guess the first thing I'd like to do is offer my absolute sincerest condolences to the Bragg family, uh, certainly Beverly and, and uh, Derek's daughter, Allison, their family, friends, and his new grandson, and uh, you know all the members of the House of Assembly. Uh, Derek was a friend to everyone in there, and, and when you hear people talk about Derek and his infectious smile and what a good guy he was, there's uh, there's absolutely no... Uh, no latitude for any movement on that. He was a spectacular human being, and it's a, it's a big loss for not just the House of Assembly, but for an entire province and all his constituents and his family. Fair enough. And as I've mentioned, I didn't know Mr. Bragg personally, but certainly folks who did know him well have nothing but great things to say about him. And it's it's a sad loss when anyone at the tender age of 59 passes. So my condolences to his friends and family and his colleagues. Absolutely. Uh, a couple of things this morning, Patty. I just wanted to circle back around on the West White Rose, Sea uh, uh, Rose going over to Belfast. And last week, uh, I guess the minister made a comment that uh, the PC uh, party should look back around at how, how all this happened. And we could have looked on Google to find out how this works. But the reality of it is, is that a lot of that work could have been done in this province and should have been done. When these tenders go out, uh, they go out designed to go to a certain place for work. So, you know, this tender didn't allow for provincial companies to bid on, on the work. And certainly we can't do a lot of the work on the hall here in this province. We could have had we put swing gates in out of Bull Arm or had we not balked on the swing gates in Argentia and took a $100 million payoff. Uh, we could have done that work here, all of it, but we can't. Uh, but there was a large portion that could be done here. And historically, we've seen every rig leave here. And come back for rework. You know, look, no, you don't have to look too far back. Terra Nova went to Spain. She came back. She ended up in here at Bull Arm getting a bunch of work done. All the new modules that have come overseas for Hebron, Hibernia, Terra Nova, and the White and Sea Rose when she was built ended up having substantial rework done here in the province. So I think that government and certainly, uh, you know, the owners, uh, they, they missed an opportunity here again to get quality work done, put men and women from this province to work, and, and it's sad that we see that happen time and time again. We're now, in desperate need of a community benefits agreement. 
Uh, for sure. But, you know, you say, had this been done at Polarma, had this been done in Argentina, had this been done elsewhere. But the fact of the matter is the work that needed to be done and the fact that that FPSO has to actually come out of the water, the closest dry dock that I even understand in this world is in Belfast at Harlan and Wolf, which I've actually seen. It's an incredible facility. So the reality is that sea rose couldn't have been taken out of the water anywhere here in this province or anywhere in the country as far as I understand. No, but had uh, had we when, and listen, this is a miss by all kinds of government levels. But uh, when Hebron was built, we had an opportunity to put a set of gates in out there in, instead of a bunwell, uh, and and that would have gave us the ability to do future work. Same thing with our gentia. What's happening out there right now uh, with the West White Rose extension? We could have put a set of swing gates in. They were scheduled to go in there, and the government said they didn't want them, and they took a hundred million dollar payoff in order for them not to go in there. If they were there, the work could be done there. We're in the middle of the North Atlantic, and the reality of it is, is there's a lot of rigs and a lot of rig work that happens on this side of the ocean, and uh, we're well positioned to do that type of work. And had we had the foresight years ago, you know, we could be doing it. And I, I just think it's a big miss time and time again. And if we had the facility here to do it, even if we go back to 2016 when the EOI came out, uh, for the bull arm facility, it, had they had gone out to a vendor then, perhaps uh, at that point, we may be positioned today to do that type of work here. There were people who were looking to grow that site into that specific type of facility, and unfortunately it's not. So once again, we watch a rig sail across the ocean for the work to happen over there, and uh, I would predict that when it comes back, it's going to end up in the bull arm facility getting more work done here uh, because because of the shanty work that's done overseas. But uh, I guess that's another, another story. Uh, the other thing I'd like to tie with Patty is Beta Nord's announcement last week with the four bids going out and the whole idea of perhaps leasing an FPSL. I don't need to get too far into that, but you know the reality uh, of us leasing or renting an FPSO to go to the furthest, you know, this is the furthest distance offshore that any work would ever happen should this go ahead. Uh, there's a lot of things come to mind, you know, not not just employment in this province, but certainly the health and safety of the men and women that would end up going to work out there. These rigs are designed to go that far off, uh, and they're specifically designed for the type of work. Uh, I don't know that leasing is a great option, and I don't know that the province should be silent on it. I mean, I believe that we should be yelling and screaming right now from the word go. So what role do you suggest the province has in a business decision made, made by Equinor? Because my understanding is there's going to be likely two FPSOs out there. So do you think that in through the benefits agreements and negotiations on the royalties and whoever's going to cover that Article 82 of the UN uh, Law of the Sea, where someone's going to have to pay hundreds of millions of dollars to uh, someone else, to developing countries. So do you think that the province should say, no, 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 you can't lease an FPSO, you have to do something different? Is that what you're saying? Well, Patty, what I'm saying is the conversation has to start now. I mean, uh, what I'm, you know, the whole thing is, first off, health and safety of the men and women that go offshore has to be the priority. Then secondarily to that, there has to be community benefits, and we should be the primary beneficiaries to that. Any oil that comes out of the ocean out there. And that means the conversation has to start now. And the energy minister clearly said it's too early in the game to have those conversations and to have those discussions but if we're not voicing our opinions now and, and showing our strong support for oil and gas, certainly after both the federal and provincial liberals have showed lackluster support for oil and gas, it's just as well to turn the taps off. We need to make sure that we are the primary beneficiaries. And there's a whole lot of complicated situations in that negotiation. But silence isn't going to solve any of it. And we should be a part of that process. Certainly, you know, we're looking at taking an equity stake out in that, Patty. I mean, we're, we're, look, we're still considered to be a partner in that whole situation. So I don't think silence serves us very well. 
I, I will say, having some experience in that industry, that people who speak uh, above and louder than the operator themselves find themselves with unfriendly faces and business relationships in that industry. It's really quite something how the operator rules the roost uh, predominantly. And equity stake is curious. Here we are potentially looking at the value of our equity stakes in the other three fields, all the while continue to look at an equity stake in uh, the Beta Nord project. So interesting stuff. Uh, what, a little different for sure. Yeah. It is. What based on actions or words from the current government here provincially leads you to believe that they are not in on oil? Because it sounds pretty loudly like they are, whether it be the reliance that the province has long had on oil. You know, it was about a billion dollars in revenue last year. So what, are the, what have they done or said that leads you to believe they're not interested in oil development? Yeah, you know, Patty, I guess the history from, from when we uh, had some issues with the Terra Nova, certainly just during COVID and different stuff, you know, it's just not a loud pushback against the federal government. And certainly with Bill C-59 coming in next week, that'll be on the Florida House, or uh, I think it goes to committee on, on Monday, and I believe uh, Minister O'Regan will be talking about it. I mean, Bill 59 is, uh, could, hand, you know, could handcuff us in a big way. You look at what just happened over in Nova Scotia. Uh, they, they vetoed uh, Save Oil and licensing over there. And uh, my guess is that they'll utilize Bill 59 in order to cripple oil and gas and to push wind energy forward. So, you know, it, it's, there's, there's a lot to be considered. And, uh, you know, you certainly haven't seen Minister Gilbo or, or the Prime Minister, any of the federal liberals. The federal liberals have been pushing back on oil and gas from day one. And you and I both know, uh, unfortunately, we don't have control of our oil and gas the way we should. And if the federal liberals decide that we're not going to develop an oil and gas, we're, it's not going to happen. And, and the provincial government hasn't had the support, and they haven't pushed back hard enough, in my opinion. Well, Stephen Gilbo did indeed, after the green light was given to the Baden Ore Project, say it's going to be more difficult in the future to get approval. So that's undeniable. That came from his mouth. But there's, there's a few things happening on the ground that makes the conversation, I don't know if it's politically, just simply politically driven or otherwise, because last year in Canada, record production record revenue, record profit for the oil and gas sector. I mean, those things are simply undeniable. It's, it's, the, it's the truth. So if the Liberals are trying to kill the industry in full, they're doing a terrible job of it because of all the records that were set last year. Now, some of that's moving targets based on production number of barrels and, of course, the price of oil itself. But the, across the board, those are the facts. Record production, record revenue, record profit. Yeah, and listen, if we're going to transition into a green economy, we need those things. And anyone who denies that, uh, you know, I mean, we need to have revenue in order to create wind energy, in order to create hydrogen, in order to, you know, perhaps even transition into LNG, which I think is important. But, you know, we, we obviously haven't made a push to do that. Um, Patty, the other thing I'd like to talk about is I've uh, last week uh, I spent a bit of time out banging on doors with uh, Tina Neri, and uh, Tina's a fantastic candidate, and the response has been spectacular. But I listened to Mr. Hutton again this morning talk about the school in uh, Paradise and it's a little troubling to hear the old style politics. I mean, listen, that school was in the budget in 2015, and the Liberals came into power, and they cancelled it. So nine years later, now all of a sudden, it's a priority, and and no different, no different than what Mr. Hutton said about the roads in Bell Island. He can make a phone call and make it all happen. And uh, it's shocking to hear that type of language. Listen, that school isn't about what color party the member represents. That school is about children, it's about education, and it's about the future of this province. And if the Liberal government cared about it, it would have been done by now. COVID isn't an excuse. The white ball isn't an excuse. The only excuse the Liberal had is that they cancel it and they decided not to do it. Now Mr. Hudden is making it a big priority, 
And it's shocking to hear the type of language that they're using around it. I mean, at the end of the day, if it was a priority in education and uh, children were a priority, this would be done. It's been a necessity since the early 2010s. It's been on the top of the priority list for years. There is yeah. no good reason as to why Paradise was not number one for a new high school to be built. And there's a couple of confusing things there. There's also a school proposed for Kenmau Terrace. I can see Kenmau Terrace from where I sit. The only confusing part to that is quite plain. We don't know what grades or how many students are even talking about. So we're just kind of making some strange decisions that are not based on the age of the population, not based on school-aged children. Paradise absolutely was at the top of the list. There's no excuse for why that wasn't build. Uh, what Mr. Hutton said about, I can make a phone call, get a road paved, that should never be said, even if there's some uh, remnants of uh, accuracy or truth to it. That's the politics of pavement, which has dogged us as residents. I don't care what party people are representing. I'm not ne- even necessarily that worried about what party is at the helm of government, but the politics of pavement is pathetic. That should yeah, be done Patty, just like schools. Priorities based on need, not based on who's sitting, who's sitting at the right hand of the premier. Yeah, I'll give you a couple of good examples. I've got Riverside Elementary here in Clarenville in my district. Uh, they, they put some temporary uh, extensions on it back in 2017. That school was slated for an extension, desperately needed an extension. Ventilation issues, overcrowding, still nothing. You know, the Liberal government has been asked about it time and time again. Still nothing should be a priority. I have uh, multiple workers from my district who work with transportation and infrastructure who have come to me and told me, they're being sent to St. John's on a regular basis to work because transportation infrastructure hasn't hired the people to do the work. So we're shortchanging these districts. And it's not just my district this is happening in, but there's a lot of politics happening in paving and in transportation infrastructure. And it's sad. And for Mr. Hutton to come out during an election and use old-style politics, and that's exactly what it is, and make promises that, listen, not only that he can't keep, but at the, re- at the end of the day, if they were legitimate and the Liberal government cared about it, he shouldn't have to make those promises because they should have been done in the last nine years. Very simple. I appreciate the time, Lloyd. Thanks for the call. Take care, Patty. You too. Bye-bye. Right. Lloyd Parrott is the PC member for Terra Nova, opposition critic for energy, technology, and innovation. Very quickly, he made mention of Article 82, the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea, and that's based on the Brader Nord Project. This has never been applied, and so it, the extraction comes with a pretty significant catch. Margin states must pay royalties on that oil money, and it gets redistributed to developing countries. And that was signed decades ago. The argument from the province was that the country signed it, the federal government signed it, the province didn't sign it, so they think the Fed should have to pay it. One thing for sure is Equinor is not going to be interested in paying it, and that comes to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars. And that's all because it's outside our protected 200 nautical mile limit of economic protection and or for uh, jurisdictional control. So that's that issue. Let's take a break. When we come back, we're talking about community food centers. There's a roundtable coming up. Shannon, Shannon McCall is the Director of Partnership and Development with Food First and Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Well, a bit of a misintroduction there. Let's go to line number two and say good morning to Shannon McCauley, Director of Partnership Development at Community Food Centres Canada, joining us on line number two. Good morning, Shannon. You're on the air. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Very happy to have you on the show. So coming up tomorrow, the 24th of January, 9.30 to 11.30 a.m. at the St. John's Community Market Community Room is this, this roundtable. What's on the agenda? So uh, there's an RFP out for a space on charter that Food for Snurfinland is, is looking at putting in a proposal for. And so uh, I've been invited by these kind of folks to come and talk a little bit about the community food center model. Um, but it's also a space for other organizations to come together and think of what um, a community space could look like there. So what does that model look like? Give us the uh, calls notes. 
Sure. So a community food center, um, uh, our, a short form for it is like grow, cook, share, and advocate is kind of what a, what consists of a community food center. So there's always um, a community meal program or other food access types of programs, potentially a food bank, affordable markets. Um, there's opportunities to connect and learn around food or uh, garden programs, um, after school programs. Um, just building skills amongst folks, um, as well as uh, social justice programs kind of run through the whole thing, because knowing that these programs are not the solution to food insecurity. And overall, these, these programs are for folks who are low income um, and uh, need support with accessing food. You know, it takes organizations like yourselves and Food First NL and a variety of others to really dig into these issues, because if you look at both provincial and federal governments, I'm not so sure that they actually get it. In the most recent mm-hmm. fall economic statement, no mention food insecurity when we know that there's millions of Canadians that are availing of food banks, they used to be donors and now they're patrons, and so if that's one of the real struggles, and grocery inflation is what it is, and one in four uh, people in this province, in Newfoundland and Labrador, are food insecure or experiencing food insecurity, yet no mention of it in these big policy statements. It's, it's alarming. So true. We're really disappointed um, at CFCC to not see that mentioned in the in the federal budget, and it really is an income and, and issue. It's, it's things are getting more and more unaffordable. And the forecast this year is about another six or seven hundred dollars for a family of four, so it's only getting worse. Absolutely, yeah. It's so important to invest in space. But, you know, that there's an urgent need to access food um, in the moment. But, you know, one of the things that we do at CFCC is really trying to ensure that spaces are dignified and bright and welcoming and add community because there's so much shame and stigma that come from accessing food support services. For sure. How does your organization measure food insecurity? Because there's a bunch of different metrics used by different provinces and different organizations because it's one thing to be food insecure in St. John's because there's a proximity issue that's not a big deal versus living in a more or rural, remote part of the province. So how do you folks approach the measurement? It really is localized. I and mean, we do um, use like the federal um, uh, measurement tool at times, but we're really trying to add um, food security as like, you know, they, they report on like poverty decreasing, but food insecurity is, is increasing. So I, I might have to direct you to our director of policy for a more um, succinct response there. But um, we're seeing that the metrics that were, are being used by the government are insufficient for measuring this. Yeah, it's that healthy food basket, I believe, is some mm-hmm. reference similar yeah. to that. So when the roundtable takes place tomorrow morning, will there be different breakouts that talk about, you know, food insecurity, urban versus places like Labrador or other parts of the province? Or is, does your model... Uh, complement a one-size-fits-all just needs to be tweaked to work in one place or another yeah well for tomorrow it is really focused on uh the, the specific proposal for um the space that's becoming available and so it is going to be talking a bit more about what it could look like in st john's to to run a community food center or something inspired by community food center there however um you know we have community food centers across the country that are based in rural communities and it looks somewhat similar but maybe on a smaller scale um and maybe more land-based programming for example like hunting and fishing and things like that how should it look? How should it look? Yeah. Um, it should look um, incredibly, you know, welcoming, um, modern, smells delicious. You know, when you walk in the space, there's something cooking. You're welcomed by, by either a volunteer or a staff. Um, maybe you would find a, um, like a, 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 an affordable market, like a, you know, a cheap and triple, like a, a really uh, abundant amount of food and produce on the side for like an affordable market. Uh, maybe you would have some kids coming in for an after school program, like a really vibrant dynamic space is what we, what often it looks like. And, it, you know, a community food center, um, you know, uh, 
it has to fit into the, the local community and what the local community needs and wants. Um, so it will be, you know, unique to each city or town it's based in. Uh, can anyone show up tomorrow? Um, there is a registration link if you go to uh, Food First NL's um, Facebook and Instagram page. So I suggest checking that out first and registering if you're interested in coming. Oh, and so it just popped up right in front of me before I, just after I asked. So there is an RSVP email address, and it's an easy one. It's kim at foodfirstnl.ca. So if you'd like to attend, you're interested in the concept of what this community room should look like, please do indeed attend tomorrow. So it's Wednesday, January 24th, 9.30 to 11.30 a.m. at the St. John's Community Market Community Room. Anything else you'd like to add this morning, Shannon? No, just thank you so much for the opportunity to chat a little bit about Community Food Centers Canada and, and the work we do. Uh, happy to have you on the program. I'm looking forward to the outcome of the roundtable tomorrow. Thanks so much. Take thank care. You too. Bye-bye. Shannon McCauley, Director of Partnership Development at the Community Food Centers Canada. Time for the news. Reg, you're next to talk about the passing of Derek Bragg. Don't go away. Nutrition, exercise, keeping the cold at bay. Whatever keeps you feeling great, the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. Reg, you're on the air. Yeah, good morning, Patty. My son, how are you doing this morning? We're doing great, thanks. How about you? Oh, good, Patty. Uh, I just want to pass my condolences on to the family of the late Derek Bragg. Uh, uh, Patty, uh, I got an old Derek. I, I was born in Greenspawn. Now I left Greenspawn in uh, 1960. Of course, uh, back then, you had to go by ferry. You had to have the only way to get up to gamble. So I lived on, a, I think I heard a gentleman on there this morning. He mentioned his wife was from Ships Island, well, that's where I was born. Okay. So, and I got to know Derry, I didn't know Derry back then, but I got to know him after he had entered the political arena, had occasion to speak to him a few times. And what I found about him, uh, Patty, uh, like, uh, like uh, the short time I did know him, I, he seemed like a, the type of fellow that, like, he had a lot of guts, a backbone, and he had a lot of clout. Like, uh, you know, he didn't know nothing back. He told it as it was, and that's what I liked about Derek, being a politician. And, uh, you know, so, like I said, uh, I think about, uh, he died much too young, or very young, and, and, and that's not a good thing. But uh, I guess that's life, you know, Patty. Life goes on, and I just want to pass my condolences on to his brother, Chloe. I knew Chloe quite well. I worked with him a, uh, a couple of years ago, so uh, I passed my condolences on to Chloe, his brother, and his wife, and uh, to all the family and to all the people in Greenspan. So I know it's a very sad day, and uh, that's pretty well all I have to say for now, Patty. So uh, I'll let you carry on, and nice talking to you again, love. For sure, I'll be talking to you later down the road. I appreciate the time, Reg, and the sentiment. Thanks for the call. Okay, thank you, sir. Welcome. Bye-bye. Yeah, I mean, by all accounts, he was an entirely reasonable fella. You know, people are talking about his sense of humor. And, you know, speaking as someone who's in the media, sometimes it's extremely difficult to get comment or response or time with the cabinet minister, like, for instance, on the air here. But never failed. When we asked uh, Derek Bragg, come on, he did. And to his credit, because this is not always the case either, you know, when you have examples of protests that are about something inside your ministerial portfolio, and repeatedly, even though you know that the Minister of Fisheries going to a fisheries-related protest is going to be blistered, is going to be heckled and unceremoniously so, 
despite that, and he knew what he was getting himself into, but he went. So there's something to be said for that, because not every politician, regardless of what party we're talking about, what party might be in power one time or another, not every time when a politician is being, their presence is being demanded by the frustrated group, regardless of what we're talking about, and it gets particularly emotional, I think, or I would suggest when we talk about fisheries-related matters, but he went out and took it. And that's not necessarily the, that would be the exception, not the rule, if you're looking right across the province and the country. Avoiding those types of potential confrontations and awkward or uncomfortable situations, of course, human nature would lead most people to do exactly that, but Bragg took it on. So, interesting stuff. And at the age of 59, regardless of who you're planning on voting for or have voted for in the past, 59 is an awful young age to pass. All right, there was one issue that we didn't get to off the top of the show. And it may not be of concern of yours necessarily. Oh, Dave, you want me to take this call before I get into the old NDP caucus issue? Okay. Okay, let's go to line number one. Caller, you're on the air. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning, Patty. Um, Just wanted to um, uh, ask you about, uh, I've I've not been able to work since like 2016. Okay. And I'm trying to get the disability and the disability tax credit. Um, I sent in letters from my physician, uh, surgeons, specialists, um, and I'm really having a hard time getting disability, and I don't understand why, or if maybe you could maybe lean me in a direction I haven't lent. <laughs> Have you uh, used the, the, the digital form, or did you um, just put it all in the mail? Um, I use the mail. I don't, have, uh, I don't use the Internet. Because there is a new digital form for the disability tax credit, and the people who I've spoken to via email in the recent past, where they were struggling the way you are, when I put them onto that digital file, they seem to get a bit more traction and a bit more quickly. So do you have someone in your world, a friend or a family member that can help you navigate the internet? Because it's a really Um, simple form. Okay, yeah, sure. Can I get the site? Do you have it? Sure. Well, I think the easiest way to get to it is if you just go on the computer with your friend and just go to Google and put in uh, Disability Tax Credit Canada, it'll bring you, the very first link will be it. And at the very top of that page, it says in in blue letters, new digital form, and you click it. And it's pretty fundamental. I did have a look at it uh, not so long ago. So that, I would suggest, is the easiest way to deal with this. So that would be the Disability Tax Credit Canada? Yeah, that's what I would put in the Google machine, and you'll come to the very first link will be exactly that. Oh, perfect. Um, is the Disability Tax Credit different than the actual disability, or is it just a tax credit? Yeah, this is just the tax credit that we're talking about, or that I thought we were talking about this morning, because okay. long-term yeah. disability um, can come in many yeah. forms, whether it be from provincial or federal coverage, or most importantly, when it comes from people's workplace or insurance or something. So there are two different things, yeah. Um, so where would I, which would I go to for like the permanent disability? Um, so was it a workplace injury? Um, well, I mean, I've worked construction a long time, uh, so I did have injuries, but I didn't work, ever go on workers' comp for okay. anything. Well, there's there's different disability pots of money out there. I would suggest that whatever doctor helped you fill out the paperwork to try to get uh, access to the disability tax credit, they'll mm-hmm. probably, knowing what you're dealing with personally, they'll probably be a better position to tell you where you should go next. But so far as that tax credit, that should be a pretty f- easy one to deal with. So just sit down with a friend, put that into Google, and you'll go right to it. And the claim application is pretty fundamental. 
Perfect. I uh, really appreciate your time, and you have a great day. The very same to you. Take care. Take care. Bye bye. All right. Bye bye. And inside that world, I, you know, I think there's probably lots of Canadians out there who would be technically eligible because they have a severe or what they call a prolonged impairment. And there's all sorts of different categories that can make you eligible for these tax credits. And it says, here's some of the broad ones. So even if there's issues with mental functions, uh, your ability to walk, hear, speak, vision loss, the inability to feed yourself or to dress yourself, issues regarding bowel or bladder functions. So there's also another category that combines the cumulative effect of all these limitations. So I'm guessing there's plenty of Canadians because they don't know whether or not their ailment or issue qualifies for this tax credit. It's certainly worth talking to your doctor about it. And I would suggest it's also completely worth just Googling Digital Tax Credit Canada, and you'll see all the different functions, or pardon me, all the different issues that uh, would pertain or maybe make you eligible for a tax credit. So do it. You know, there's no harm in putting in an application. You do need some certification from your doctor to talk about your concern, to talk about your impairment. So I'm guessing there's plenty of Canadians that don't think that what ails them actually technically makes them eligible for that tax credit. But you might uh, might surprise yourself by having a further look and conversation with your doctor and going through the application process. No harm in trying. Uh, let's take our final break of the morning. When we come back, still another segment left for you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Say good morning to the mayor of New West Valley. That's Mike Tiller. Mayor Tiller, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? I'm doing fine this morning. How are you doing, Mayor? Not too bad, Patty. Uh, I, I thought really with the air answer, but I would be remiss if I didn't uh, pass on the condolences of, uh, of our council and our staff and, and I guess everybody in the town and, and the district and the Bright family was a you know, something that you you kind of knew that was coming, but it's, it's always a shock when it does happen. You know? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, you're right. When you get that sort of diagnosis and prognosis, the end is coming at some point in the not-too-distant future, but it's still always a shock to the system when it happens. It is, Patty. He was a, a friend. He was you could pick his brain if you had issues with the town or, you know, you sit down for coffee and he'd run stuff. Uh, you know, but he, he, was, he was a great guy to be around and a good friend, and, and he's going to cer- certainly be missed. So, um, Patty, you originally, like I said, what I called is the air ambulance system in Central. Um, I am a full supporter of, uh, of what Percy Farrell is trying to do and keep the air ambulance in Central. Um, I have a scenario I don't think it's brought up, but I know it's something that happened to me about 15 years ago. We've got a, a patient in the Ganner, she was a lady that was in preterm labor, uh, premature labor with twins. Uh, she took us about two and a half hours to get to Ganner, and then she was supposed to be airlifted to St. John's. Unfortunately, uh, St. John's Airport was snowed in. We were only lucky that it wasn't there and was in Ganner at the time station, and uh, she was just met back to Halifax and said where the appropriate care was uh, If there wasn't uh, an airman in Canada at the time, there would certainly have been a, a freak effort to get her in St. John's via roll, which would not have been easy with the weather at the time. And you know, who knows what the outcome would have been. Um, so I certainly think that having an airman station in, in Central is, is, 
it's something that has to happen. Makes sense to me. You know, just one look at the map. Now, we're still trying to find out if there's some sort of rationale behind it, you know, logistically speaking, because for the most part, St. John's would be the end destination as opposed to the origin of the flight itself. So if we're talking about centralized location, the time with which the air ambulance can respond to a call, it just kind of makes sense that Gander would be the home of it. We're still trying to get those answers from the province, but I'm not really sure I understand why they're going down that road. Patty. Uh, I also heard Eugene Nippert on yesterday, and he was talking about, uh, you know, having the airstrip on Fogo Island and that they wanted the air ambulance to be able to go to Fogo Island, and, and, and that is understandable, and that helicopters that were used in the past weren't equipped, which they weren't. The, uh, the Canadian uh, national helicopters that were being used uh, weren't equipped. However, uh, where I would differ, I think that the outport and rural areas in Newfoundland would benefit from a helicopter if it was the, the Cougar type helicopter that was staffed and equipped like the province is talking about because uh, a Cougar helicopter will be able to go to Fogo Island and land in a lot worse weather conditions and day or night whereas if you know just a fixed aircraft I think a lot of times you, you wouldn't be able to get them on Fogo Island or, or anywhere in, in rural. A helicopter is, is to me the only way to go for to get uh, seriously ill patients out of rural Newfoundland. We uh, we had Cougar Helicopter actually uh, one or four last. They came out from St. John's and landed behind uh, the Dr. White Cage on the Kittyway Health Center, and they took the patient off the helipad and went with them, which was ideal. Uh, the only problem that we had is that it wasn't staffed or equipped at the time, so it took some time to retrofit the aircraft to take the, the unnecessary equipment out, and when it came to us, we had to supply the medical equipment. Again, which you know delays the transport of the patient. So if if I, uh, Minister Osborne is is accurate in what he's saying that there will be Cougar helicopters that are uh, equipped and that are staffed for 24/7 for these types of emergencies, I think that is ideal for rural areas. And you know, an air travel one doesn't help change others or anywhere else. The helicopter can just anywhere. Yeah, another problem, as I said, that helicopters will be part of the air ambulance system. What blend of fixed-wing aircraft and helicopters will be part of the fleet, I really don't know. I don't think that breakdown has ever been offered. But helicopters obviously will play an active role. And again, that Cougar helicopter or whatever brand they decide to go with should be stationed in Central because it can service everywhere from Harbour Britain to Twillingate to uh, down Bayburt Peninsula. You know, it's, it's readily available to all the rural areas that don't have... Uh, the accessibility of an landing strip. Yeah, exactly right, and that's, I assume, the reason for. Perfect, Patty. Uh, well, that's basically all i got to say, you know, and throw all my support towards uh, Central to keep the air ambulance and, and to upgrade our uh, ticks and, and rotary uh, medevacs. And, of course, you know, uh, Mayor Farwell in uh, in Gander is not only talking about the geographical advantage that Gander presents, but there's a bunch of jobs that go by the wayside if and when the air ambulance is taken out of his area. I think he used the number, what, it was either 7 or 10 in the dispatch world. So that's a problem. It is a big problem. You're always trying to keep your train and your, your experienced people in your community. Uh, nobody wants to see that go. I know he doesn't want to see it go no more than we ever want to see us uh, lose anything in our town. So it's essential that you keep trained and, 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 and experienced and employed people in your town. Because if not, your town ceases to grow. Yeah, and when you lose it, it's hard to get it back. Most certainly. We've lost a lot here over the years. We used to have our... Uh, um, 
for lack of a better word, they used to say the unemployment office used to be in our town. We've lost a lot of federal jobs. Uh, we're lucky that we still have a fisheries officer station in our town. And, and of course, you're always on the worry that more federal stuff is going to be took out or provincial. So it's something that you always got to fight for as a, as a mayor and an official in a small town. It used to be one of the big rally cries at uh, provincial politicians because there's nothing quite like uh, political favour with punching up, right? Fight with the federal government has always been a victory for provincial governments. But there was always that argument about we were underserved with federal government jobs. I don't know if that was borne out to be true on a provincial level, but certainly if you're in a smaller community that lost 2, 10, 12 federal government jobs, that's a big knock. Ten professionals, even St. John's, even Cornerbrook, is certainly not not big. Ten professionals in a, in a small area it certainly packs a harder punch. Correct, Patty. For sure. Good to have you on the show, Mayor Tiller. Thank you, Patty. Anytime. Take care of yourself. Bye bye. That's Mike Tiller. He's the mayor of New West Valley. And speaking of Cougar, I mean, Cougar not only does the offshore passenger transportation participating in search and rescue, uh, I didn't know that they played a role in the air ambulance service, but now I do. And, of course, they fly the Sikorsky S-92 helicopter, which has... um, a place in the conversation here. When we talk about Equinor and Bader Nord and the distance offshore, the implications that means for hundreds of millions of dollars of royalties to be paid because of an article uh, signed by the country with the United Nations, there's also the, the thought about how you get people in and out of there. So I don't think the Sikorsky S-92, I think there's only two kind of helicopters in the world that are uh, accredited for this type of transportation. I think the other one's called the Super Puma and the, the Sikorsky S-92. Can that indeed be the transportation vehicle if and when Beta Nord is developed? I don't know. I don't think so. So whether we talk about the fact that maybe crews are going to go out, maybe there be a platform midway for refueling and what have you and to deal with some potential bad weather and or we're simply going to see supply ships used as the mode of transportation, still a lot left to be considered at that point or on that issue. That whole bit about the hundreds of millions of dollars. So that was covered by the national press because the province, when talking about who was going to foot that bill and they... I think rightfully said it should be the responsibility of the federal government, given the fact that the federal government is a signatory to that particular article in the United Nations Law of the Sea. Because one thing for sure, it's going to be part of the negotiation with Equinor to come up with an eventual benefits agreement. And no doubt, Equinor is going to be extremely resistant to having to foot that bill. So whether or not there's some uh, cost share on that front, whether or not it's going to end up a provincial responsibility, which is significant, because hundreds of millions of dollars less, considering the fact that we're hundreds of millions of dollars, about a half a billion dollars less, when we talk about the extended life field out of Terra Nova. Of course, some of that is cash on the barrelhead. A couple hundred million dollars. The other is about $300 million in royalties that we're not going to collect. So... The province has got themselves actively involved, and I would like to get an update. It's probably going to take maybe in the neighborhood of six months before the province uh, gets a feel, uh, a market temperature, on what the value of our oil assets would be. Because, of course, a key recommendation that came from uh, the Green Report, the Premier's Economic Recovery Team, also it was broached by the Rothschild Report to come much more up with a a valuation versus simply the concept of selling it off. Anyway, pretty good stuff. Final check of the Twitter box. 
before we run out of time for this morning. We're VOCM Open Line. You know what to do. Comment on what you heard. Suggest uh, topics and uh, guests for uh, coming shows. Whatever you like. We're taking your email. It's openlineofvocm.com. And we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.